Hello and welcome back to The Film Degree. As you know, my name is Patrick and as always, I have a very exciting episode for you all today. Um, I'm sure you can tell that this is a much longer episode than usual. Um, I'm kind of, I kind of am experimenting on how I write episodes if I want to use like just notes or if I do a full script and I'm kind of using more so a script with this time and the previous times I've used scripts, they were about nine pages long. Well, this one is 43 (laughs) and that is because we are celebrating the entire Scream franchise in preparation for the new film, which is out January 14th. I already got my tickets and I was waiting for them to drop right away. And I snagged them up right at midnight when they dropped. I got a few IMAX tickets for opening night. And I'm just begging you bitches to please stay the fuck home. <laughs> this movie means too much for me for omicron to fuck shit up for me i don't need to be locked down again although i kind of think we do need a lockdown actually i fully think we need a lockdown i truly think scream should be either pushed back or put on paramount plus as well but what are you gonna do but i (laughs) i'll fucking kill myself if i get covid right before the fucking scream premiere and i can't see it opening night one i have major fomo but two this series is so fucking important to me. (laughs) It is very near and dear to my heart. And I was going to do this big emotional spiel on how Scream came into my life at a time that I needed it the most and how important the character of Gail Weathers is to me. But I realized I don't need to air out all of my vulnerable moments to the world. (laughs) I am a chronic oversharer, but This series means the world to me, and that is all you need to know. Plus, this will be a very long episode, like I said, so let's just get right into it. I'll be discussing the plots of all four of the Scream films in detail, and I will briefly mention the MTV and VH1 TV series. Um, And even though I would love for everyone to listen to this episode because I put so much fucking work into it, I basically wrote a senior thesis here. I really think you should watch all four of the films before listening to this episode. The series is irrelevant, really. You don't need to watch that shit. Um, I will, I'll briefly talk about that at the end. But part of the magic of Scream is the red herrings, is the whodunit aspect. And I really don't want to ruin that for anyone. But if you do insist on listening before watching, which I would also appreciate, you do you. Also, I would just love the views or listens or whatever, because it's been a while since I've uploaded, but that's because I wrote like 43 fucking pages. So give me a break. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I totally got sidetracked. But if you insist on listening before, I will give a play-by-play of the story of all the films. I've written them all down so it won't be like my Halloween Kills bullshit where I was all over the place. It won't be about Resident Evil where I was all over the place. Like I got my shit together. So you shouldn't get lost. All right. Scream is very important to me. 
Um, it's very important to a lot of people. It's an instantly iconic film and series. And I hope I do right by the franchise here in this, however long this is going to be. And I feel like it's going to be a long one. My jaws, I know it's going to hurt. I'm sorry if my computer makes a loud noise like the fan because it is a gaming laptop and I will be doing this for a while whatever. <laughs> I did most of my research, especially for the first one with an oral history by Ringer. And I also used, you guessed it, Wikipedia, obviously. But for this one, I always checked the sources on it. I looked at the articles that were cited in Wikipedia. So all of this should be correct. Also, I listened to, well, I watched and listened to the, um, all four of the commentary tracks on all the films. Plus I watched them again even without the commentary tracks. So I know what the fuck I'm talking about. All right. All right. If you don't know, all four of the original Scream films were directed by Wes Craven, and he's unfortunately not directing Scream 5 because he passed away in 2015. And his death was honestly the first celebrity death to truly affect me. I was so devastated and upset. I think I like sat inside my house that day, that night or whatever. I cried while watching all of his movies and oh, I loved that man. <laughs> he was amazing and he not just an amazing filmmaker. He was an amazing man. He loved making movies and bird watching. And he is the true master of horror as far as I'm concerned. And when watching the commentary tracks for this episode, basically Wes, because he was on all four of them, he just continuously talked about how he truly loved his craft and how he loved his cast and crew. And he spends like the entire time talking about his crew and praising them and everyone he works with. And he made sure everyone around him on set knew that they were important to the production. And a lot of the cast and crew have said that he was a father figure to many. And I scoured the internet for info on these movies. And I could only find so much love and adoration for that man. He is a legend. And honestly, like if you don't know who Wes Craven is, he is a legend. He made so many horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, which he also wrote that one. Um, the Hills Have Eyes, People Under the Stairs, Serpent in the Rainbow, Red Eye, and of course, Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, Scream 4, and many others. He's an icon. Like, he created fucking Freddy Krueger. It doesn't get much more iconic than that. So I just want to publicly state my thanks to Wes for making these films. Um, I know I just said I wasn't going to talk about anything, like, whatever, like get all sappy and shit. But I do like without going into too much detail, Scream is just one of the most important and consistent things in my life. I went through a very vulnerable time at a very young age where I was having like a mental health crisis and I was closeted and I was depressed and I was angry and Honestly, I genuinely wanted to kill myself and Scream just brought me so much comfort and so many laughs during that awful time and the series feels like an old friend to me at this point and I watched a lot of movies during that time period in my life. I can't rewatch them because they just bring back 
bad memories and bad feelings. But for some reason, Scream was never like that. And I always rewatch it and it, it always makes me feel better. And it truly just gets better and better every time I watch it. So thank you, Wes Craven. And thank you, Kevin Williamson, who created these characters and the world of Woodsboro. (laughs) But now that we got that sappy shit out of the way, I think we should just get right into the plot of the original Scream movie, and then we'll get into more of the production afterwards. Hello? Hello? Yes? Who is this? Mm, Who are you trying to reach? What number is this? What number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Do I? It happens. Take it easy. So Scream opens with the immediately iconic Drew Barrymore death scene that I can only imagine being shocking in 1996. Um, The story takes place in the town of Woodsboro, where she plays high schooler Casey Becker. She's alone in the house and getting ready to watch some scary movies when she gets a call from a mysterious man who is voiced by the insanely talented Roger L. Jackson. And the conversation starts as innocent with the two discussing like slasher movies. And that's when we get the famous line, what's your favorite scary movie? Uh, But it soon turns horrifying when the man on the phone starts threatening her. And Casey finds her boyfriend, Steve, is tied up on the back porch. And now she has to play a game with the man on the phone of slasher movie trivia, I guess is how you would put it. Um, She ultimately fails on a bullshit question about who the killer is in Friday the 13th. And if you've seen Friday the 13th, you would know. Although Casey's seen it, um, but she didn't know this answer. (laughs) she's asked um who the killer is in friday the 13th she says jason and um ghostface is like "Mm, you're incorrect and she's like actually you're incorrect i've seen that movie 20 goddamn times and he's like "Mm, clearly you didn't see it because mrs Voorhees, jason's mother was the killer in the first one jason didn't come in the sequel sorry gotta kill steve and steve is gutted and then he's like okay i'll give you another question um what door am I at am I at the front door or the back door and she's like um oh what the hell and then Ghostface throws a chair through the door it's a glass door and she starts running for her life this is when we see the iconic mask and I'm sure I will say everything is iconic in this I'll say it a million times but like truly this mask is iconic it is one of the most easily recognizable pieces of film visuals ever or iconography or whatever i don't know if that's the right terminology to use but i don't know a single person who doesn't know the ghost face mask you go to any um halloween store costume store the mask is there if you go to any fucking walk anywhere on halloween the mask is there it is everywhere you can't go anywhere without the ghost face mask i think Would I say it's the most iconic mask in slasher movie history? Hmm. You know what? I might actually say that. But I don't know because we do got, we got Michael Myers and we got Jason Voorhees. I think all three of them are equally iconic. You can't really go anywhere without seeing those masks. So yeah. Anyway. Iconic. Um... (laughs) 
Casey fights off as best she can, but she is killed just as her parents get home, which is kind of heartbreaking to see. Actually, it's really heartbreaking because like Ghostface chokes her out and she can't speak and she's like, mom, with her little crushed larynx or whatever. They come in, they see the house is completely destroyed and then the dad's like you need to get the fuck out of here go to the Mackenzie's house I'll call the police or whatever she gets on the phone she hears Casey on the other end still breathing and when she gets outside she sees Casey has been strung up in a tree in the front yard completely gutted and the sequence is definitely an oh shit moment for the audience because it's the moment we understand that no one is safe in this movie because Drew Barrymore was one of the biggest stars at the time, really of all time, really. And she was heavily used in the marketing and everyone expected her to be the main hero because one, she's Drew Barrymore. Two, she's Drew Barrymore in a slasher movie. That like was kind of unheard of. Actually, it was unheard of to have these big stars in a slasher movie. Like, what the fuck? What is she doing here? Obviously, she's the hero. Um, Wrong. 12 minutes in, we fucking kill her. Maybe it's 13 minutes. I don't know. But it's a genius decision. And we'll discuss later on how it came to be. But I love this scene. I think it might be my favorite scene of all time. Like, not even just in Scream, but in all the film. Watch me say that again on this episode. <laughs> I guarantee I will. But it's like so genuinely horrifying, but also at the same time cozy in like a bizarre sense. Um, in the commentary track, Wes Craven explains that he used certain colors of blue in the scene to give the feeling of right before you watch a movie when like the TV is blue before you like put the tape in. And like, I know I'm young. I was born in 1998. I'm 23 years old, but growing up, I did use VHS tapes. I watched them all the time. I was a huge movie buff. So I spent a lot of nights, many a nights. Oh my God, it sounded like Mennonites. Isn't that from the Bible? I'm, I don't know if I said that. Anyway, many a nights is what I meant. <laughs> oh my God. I spent many a nights in my room, turning my TV to channel three so I can watch a movie the screen would go blue and then you i rewind my tapes whatever i don't know i don't know if it's the blues that are comforting or what but clearly wes made very deliberate decisions in his i'm thinking is mennonites i hope that's in the bible and it's not some word i shouldn't say <laughs> if it is i'm so sorry i feel like it's in the bible though um <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I don't know where I was saying something about Wes. I don't know. He made, I think I was saying like he made very deliberate decisions in his filmmaking and you can feel it. His movies have a beating heart that many films do not have. And that's just why this whole scene and this, really this whole film works so well is because it has this heart. And I just need to say, I know horror is always quote unquote forgotten in awards season, but it is a true shame here. It is a true shame because Drew Barrymore deserved a lot of recognition for this performance, like a lot. And I genuinely, genuinely 
believe that she should have been a serious contender in the best supporting actress category during award season. I truly believe that 100%. She's incredible here. And I really think this whole film should have been a serious contender in award season. Uh, A lot of horror films are not ever in contention, especially at the Oscars. Like I can think of three, there may be more, but honestly, I can only think of um, The Exorcist um, was that in 76, maybe 72, 71? I don't know. It was in the seventies. Um, Silence of the Lambs in 2000, oh my God, 1991. And then, um, Get Out, which was what, 2017, 2018. So yeah, there was no way a slasher movie was going to be an award contender, but truly Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Score. Like, that's what it should have been nominated at the minimum. The minimum. But Drew is very fantastic. I can't praise her enough for this role. She is fantastic. Instantly iconic. Her little blonde bob wig. Incredible. But back to the story. That same night, we meet Sydney Prescott, who would become the hero of this franchise. She is played by the severely underrated Nev Campbell, who at the time was known for starring in the show Party of Five, as well as the film The Craft, um, which I can't remember if The Craft came out right before or after. Um, whatever. Um, Sydney Prescott is a girl healing from the rape and murder of her mother almost exactly one year before. And anyway, her boyfriend, Billy, played by Ski Ulrich, who also was in um, The Craft, sneaks into her window at night. And it is here that we learn that she is a play on the virgin final girl trope within the slasher genre. And um, it's an idea that will be played with later on in the film, like many other slasher tropes that are turned on their head. Like that is Scream's whole thing. It's meta. It's like the first meta horror movie whatever um (laughs) anyway um sydney's father barges into the room and billy hides behind the bed sydney tells him that um i'm sorry he tells sydney the father neil prescott tells sydney that he will be leaving on a trip in the morning that um, she can reach him at the hilton hotel at the airport when he leaves billy and her kind of like kind of hook up they talk about how they have never had sex before. She hasn't. And yeah, Billy leaves soon after. Um, the next day when Sydney gets to school, she sees that the school is swarming with reporters and police. And she runs into her little bestie, Tatum Riley, played by Rose McGowan, who tells her that Casey and Steve were killed and that the police say that their deaths were even worse than Sydney's mother, Maureen, the year prior. Um, by the way, I just want to add that Rose McGowan is another standout here. Really, this whole cast is incredible. It's an incredible cast, but she's a scene stealer and has really great comedic timing and line delivery from Kevin Williamson's script. Like she was perfect for this. And I am actually, this is how I got into Scream was because Rose McGowan was in it and I was a huge Charmed fan growing up. Um, long story on how I got into it. What age? I don't really remember. It's like 2010. I was pretty late in the horror world. 
for me, surprisingly. But yes, Rose McGowan, amazing. But again, back to the story. <laughs> this is when we start to meet the other characters. We get a glimpse of Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, who at the time she was in Friends. This would have been 96, so it was like what, season three or something of Friends, right? Did that come out in 96 or 94? I feel like it was 94. So she would have been like season two, season three of Friends at the time. And Gail's one of the reporters outside of the school. And we also meet Dewey Riley Tatum's sweet and innocent older cop brother, played by David Arquette, who I can't imagine anyone else playing Dewey. He, I don't even know how to describe David Arquette as an actor. I think he's insanely talented, but he, I don't think he's cast a lot into like big things because he's just such a bizarre actor. His facial expressions are so weird, but they work. I love, I love David. Anyway, there's also Sheriff Burke, and he's played by Joseph Whip, as well as Principal Himbury, who's played by Henry Winkler from Happy Days. And um, basically, everyone in the school is being questioned, and Sydney is questioned by Dewey and Burke in Himbury's office. And this is when we start to get red herrings. We see, like, fucking weirdo Principal Himbury, like, holding onto Sydney's face, and the officer Burke is like, mm, what the fuck is going on here, weirdo? <laughs> But really, like, Scream, they always are throwing red herrings. Basically, they are, like, they're trying to make it look like every character at some point is the killer in every single one. Anyway, later, Sydney, Tatum, Billy, and their two other friends, Randy Meeks and Stu Mocker, sit outside at this fountain discussing that the police, discussing what the police discussed with them, basically. And Randy and Stu are fan favorites, even though it is a bit redundant to say that because almost every character in this film is a favorite. But Randy's a bit of an outsider of the group. Um, he's obsessed with horror movies. And he's played by Jamie Kennedy. And Stu, who is Billy's best friend, is also Tatum's boyfriend, who is played by the insane Matthew Lillard. Um, <laughs> Matthew Lillard goes balls to the wall here. And... He's a high point in this movie too. Actually, he, oh God, he is so good here. Truthfully, fuck the Oscars because Drew Barrymore, Matthew Lillard, they fucking deserved a spot in there. Sorry, it's true. I don't make the rules, but it's true. Um, it's it's like an insane performance, and I think that needs recognition, especially considering that the commentary track in the commentary track, Kevin Williamson said that Stu was the most underrated character and Matthew basically ad-libbed almost all of his huge quirks, which is almost every line he has is a weird quirk. <laughs> um, so later that night, Sydney is home alone waiting for Tatum to pick her up from cheer practice or something when she call when she's called by Ghostface. Um, he too engages in discussion about slasher movies and Sydney's like, yeah, I don't like that shit. Actually, it's fucking stupid. And she kind of talks about the cliches, which is like part of the joke of the movie because she's like, um, slasher movies are fucking dumb because the big titted girl always runs upstairs when she's supposed to be running out the front door and later on in this scene when she herself sydney herself is being chased she runs up the stairs instead of out the door so we get a sense of this world is very meta we understand slasher movies now exist within this world within slasher movies like they reference them 
something that wasn't happening really before. Like in Halloween, they're not like, oh my God, Jason Voorhees. He's just like Jason Voorhees, you know? So whatever. That's the whole point of the scene. So anyway, because of this conversation, she thinks the call is from Randy because he loves horror movies and he's fucking crazy. And she is soon attacked by Ghostface. Sydney fights him off right away. We're like, okay, she's a badass, clearly. Um, she's able to, she can't make it out of the front door really because she locked it with the, what are those little chain locks? Maybe it's just called a chain lock. I don't know, but she can't get it in time before Ghostface stabs at her. So she runs up the stairs, even though she should have ran out the back fucking door. Um, (laughs) but she makes it to her room and in her room, there's like a door that is right next to another door. If they're both open, it kind of stops the other one from opening. Don't know how to describe it, but she locks herself in her room and she does this thing that I don't really know what she's doing. She's like typing on the computer, like typing to 911. And I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and I watched it with my parents and I was like, what the fuck is she doing? And they're like, honestly, I don't know. Which, was it a real thing? I honestly, I don't know. But when she's in her room, Billy pops up in the window again and she thinks she's rescued, but then a cell phone pop falls out of his pocket. <gasps> Surprise! And she suspects he's the killer because um, why else would he have a cell phone? <laughs> and later on in the scene, later on when he's um, arrested or whatever, the cop, Officer Burke is like, what are you doing with a cellular telephone? <laughs> I guess everyone not had, didn't have cell phones in 1996. I don't know. I wasn't alive then. Um, but the police arrive and then Gail Weathers and her cameraman, Kenny, are not far behind, which comes two of my favorite lines in the movie. The first being, what? Jesus, the camera, hurry. My name isn't Jesus. And then when Gail says, Look, Kenny, yeah? I know that you're about 50 pounds overweight. But when I say hurry, please interpret that as move your fat tub of lard ass now. Oh, God. Courtney knocks that out of the park with her delivery. And I also cannot imagine anyone else playing her. She is the most lovable, unlikable person ever. I love her. But at the police station, Dewey tells Sydney that they cannot find her father at the Hilton. And Billy is also questioned, but is eventually let go because they don't have anything. Uh, but Sydney is escorted out of the police station by Dewey and Tatum when they are ambushed by Gail and Kenny. Gail has written a book about Maureen's, or sorry, about Sydney's mother, Maureen, and how she believes Cotton Weary, the man Sydney testified against at the murder trial, is innocent and basically Sydney put away an innocent man. So when Gail tells Sydney that she will send her a copy of her book, Sydney punches her in the face and she is taken to Tatum and Dewey's house. And this is when she gets another call from the killer saying she, um, the movie says fingered the wrong guy. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't fingered, fingered. Oof. Okay. Basically, they're like, Billy's innocent. He's not the killer. It's me, LOL. And basically, he also says, um, Cotton didn't kill your mother. I did. Teehee. So the next day at school, for some reason, they're like, Sydney, you should go to school. (laughs) 
The next day, at school, her kids are running around in ghost face masks, and Sydney overhears students calling her a liar and calling her mother a slut who got around. And Sydney's like maybe attacked by the killer, maybe it's just someone dressed up. We don't really know, but whatever. Um, Sydney or Stu decides to throw a party at his house once school is let out early because curfews put into place and there's been an attack. And when Hembry's alone in school, he is killed by Ghostface as well. Who really cares? Who's creepy? He was weird, and he's an old man. Who cares? Anyway, Sheriff Burke tells Dewey to escort Sydney to Stu's party because he thinks the killer is her father, whom they still can't find. They think for some reason they're like he snapped after his mu- after his wife cheated on him and was murdered and blah 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 blah. Um. So Dewey takes Sydney and Tatum to the party, which is crashed by Gail Weathers because she wants to get information. She thinks the killer is going to strike there or something. She plants a camera in the house and hopes more murders are going to happen because she's fucking crazy and wants the story. (laughs) So she starts flirting with Dewey kind of in the beginning of the movie. Dewey gets a call saying there's an abandoned car down the road. So he takes Gail to check it out. And Kenny stays in the van secretly watching the party like a creep. And when Tatum goes to the garage to grab more beers, she is met by Ghostface. And this is the first time we actually hear the name Ghostface. And that is Tatum. She jokingly says, Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Casper, that's rap. And she thinks it's Randy playing a joke because everyone thinks it's Randy because he's fucking creep. And yeah, it's probably one of the most memorable scenes in the franchise. Tatum is attacked and ultimately killed, but she does put up a very good fight. And the one thing I really like about Scream is that the Ghostface is very much he can be hurt. Um he can like run into things while running he can trip that doesn't happen with michael myers it doesn't happen with jason Voorhees. it doesn't happen with freddy krueger he is very much a real person or she they are very much a real person and we see that a lot in well really the whole movie but this scene in particular when tatum fights back but she's killed when her head is crushed in the garage door when she tries crawling through it and Ghostface turns it on and the garage door rises and her head is crushed or neck snapped, whatever. It's a great sequence. But Billy shows up to the party and he and Sydney go upstairs and Randy tells the remaining party goers the rules of horror, such as like, if you say, I'll be right back, you're going to die. Virgins don't die. Um, so don't have sex, don't drink, don't do drugs, whatever. Um, unfortunately for Sydney, her and Billy decide to have sex for the first time. (laughs) And this is when the party gets a call saying Hembry was found hanging from a goalpost at school. So everyone, except for Randy, Stu, Sydney, and Billy are like, let's go see this dead body. And they leave. And in this moment, um, Dewey and Gail find Sydney's father's car has been abandoned down the road. So they rush back to the house thinking that Neil Prescott is back or he's at the house going to kill them or kill the kids or whatever. I don't know. So we get back to the house and Sydney and Billy are in Randy's parent or not Randy, Stu's parents' bedroom. They just had sex 
And she's basically like, who did you call after um, you got arrested? And he's like, I called my father. And she's like, "Mm, actually, I don't think so because I saw Sheriff Burke call him. And then he's like, "Uh, well, um," and she's like, I just think it'd be like clever if the killer, if you were the killer and you called me as your one phone call to throw me off. And he's like, what do I have to do to prove I'm not the killer? And then surprise, Ghostface is there and he starts stabbing Billy. And she's like, oh my God. And then she's attacked. So she's running around. She runs around the house with a nice chase scene. She is able to escape by being kind of like, not pushed out the window, but she basically jumps out of a window. And she lands on a boat, falls out. She's in front of the garage. And the reason nobody saw Tatum before is because the garage is kind of like pointed to the side, which is really weird. So no one saw her hanging there. Um, so she sees her friend is dead and she's like, holy shit. So she makes it to the van with Kenny and I don't know. Actually, I feel like some other things happen while she's running. It's a very long chase sequence, a great chase sequence. Um, but she makes it to the van with Kenny and his throat is slit and she is stabbed in the shoulder and Sydney escapes again. And then Dewey and Gail arrive back at the house. So Dewey goes inside with his gun, but he tells Gail to call for backup at the van and she's like kenny kenny i need the cellular and it is the biggest fucking phone i have ever seen in my life (laughs) i don't know why it's such a goddamn big phone because unless it's a car phone i don't know but you know didn't they have car phones in charlie's angels am i making that up the original i feel like i'm making that up now oh well who cares but it's a big ass phone But he, oh, when she gets to the van first, there's like blood everywhere. And she's like, what the fuck? And she's got these like fucking amazing, like, I don't even know the color, like coral heels on. I was like, she looks good. So she gets in the front seat and then <laughs> um, Randy pops his head up and she freaks out, starts banging his head with this big ass brick of a phone. And then she starts to drive away and Kenny's body falls off the roof onto the windshield. And she's like, Kenny, love you. Get the fuck off my windshield. And he flies off. She's driving away. And Sydney jumps out in front of the car for help. And Gail freaks out, crashes the car like a bad crash. And Sydney's like, oh, fuck. So she runs back to the house. And Dewey comes out and he's like, Sydney? (laughs) In his like sweet little puppy dog face. And, um, turns out he falls over. turns out he's been stabbed in the back. So she runs up, grabs his gun, and then Randy and Stu appear asking for help. She points the gun at them. She don't trust them. And she's like, fuck you both. Literally, she says that. Locks the, <laughs> locks herself in the house. And then Sydney discovers that Billy is alive. And he stumbles down the stairs, covered in bloody blood from his wounds, And he takes the gun from her. He goes to the door, letting Randy in. And then he shoots Randy. We all go a little mad sometimes. No, Billy! Fuck! (laughs) Anthony Perkins, psycho. Hmm. Corn syrup. Same stuff they use for pig's blood and carry. Help me, please. 
Surprise, Sydney. But surprise, Stu turns up and he is the second ghost face. So these two little gay boys, and I mean that with all the love, they are so gay. But they're ghost face and um they explained to Sydney that they killed Sydney's mother because Maureen was having an affair with Billy's father, which led to her separation or his separation. Ugh which led to the separation of his parents and they planned on framing Sydney's fathers for the murders whom they tied up and he was in a closet. And honestly, I don't know how fucking Neil didn't like, I don't know, kick something, let people know that he was in the house. Like, are you that fucking useless? You need to have your daughter do everything, whatever. Oh, man, they're fucking dumb. So, <laughs> um, their whole plan is that they're going to stab each other and make them look like the victims. So they start stabbing each other and they explain to Sydney that she can now die because she's no longer a virgin. And at this point, Billy and Stu, they start stabbing each other and they're fucking crazy. And Stu has so many good lines here. Like when Billy throws the phone and it hits him and he's like, you hit me with the phone, dick. <laughs> it's great. It's classic. It is an amazing sequence. This whole half of the movie is fucking incredible. I mean, the whole thing is incredible, but this scene is so fucking good. Um, but as they're stabbing each other and Billy's getting a little knife happy on Stu, Gail shows up who was believed to be dead and she's holding a gun. Um, and Billy says to Stu, you were supposed to make sure she was dead. And he's like, I, she looked dead, still does. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. And honestly, oh God, I can't, I can't, I can't say enough how good Matthew Lillard is here. But anyway, Gail tries to shoot them, but the safety's on and Billy kicks her. She falls into the door, knocks out, falls into Dewey. And Sydney takes this opportunity to kind of um, hide and whatever. It's all this distraction thing. And this is when the final fight begins. And she fights off both, all of whom at this point have stab wounds because she's able to stab um, Billy with a umbrella and um, when he's down, she kills Stu by dropping a very large TV on his head and Billy gets up to finish Sydney off Sydney and Randy. Sorry. Randy wakes up or gets up and Billy gets up to finish them off and Gail comes back shooting and she shoots Billy and we're like, Oh, great. We survived. We survived. It's all happy. And then Randy's like, um, this is the moment in movies where the killer jumps up and he's no longer dead. And then Sydney went, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says that. And then Billy pops up and Sydney grabs the gun, shoots him in the head and he's Careful. dead. This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. Not in my movie. And that is the end of Scream. Sydney, Gail, Randy, and Dewey survived the attacks. Um, we see Dewey getting pulled off into a gurney and Gail tells her story. It becomes a huge hit. And that is the plot of Scream. So 
almost 25 years ago to the date. It was like a year ago or a year ago. It was like a couple weeks ago because I thought this episode was going to come out much earlier. But um, Scream was widely released on December 20th in 1996, and it was directed by Wes Craven, who I have mentioned in the beginning, one of the most iconic figures in horror. Um, And I owe so much to him. I like, whatever. I've already said, thank you, Wes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just owe so much to him. I love him. But anyway... (laughs) Kevin Williamson originally wrote this film under the title of Scary Movie, which is funny because, you know, Scary Movie would become the parody of Scream. Um, But it was Kevin's first screenplay and it was an instant success. There was a bidding war for it and Miramax ended up buying it for like $400,000. And um, this proved to be smart because the movie would obviously become a global success. The first film... um, ended up grossing $173 million, not adjusted for inflation on a budget of $15 million. And I just want to like put all of this into perspective on the actual success that Scream was compared to everything else that was in horror. But uh, the original Halloween grossed 60 to $70 million. The original Nightmare on Elm Street, which is another Wes Craven movie, grossed $57 million. Friday the 13th, about $60 million. And that's just the originals, the greats, whatever. And those were different times. I don't know the inflation shit. So take this as you will. But when I look at the, when you look at the nineties slasher films, like Child's Play 2, that only grossed 35 million. Um, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers made 15 million. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 made about 6 million. Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare grossed about 36 million. And Jason Goes to Hell um, only got about 16 million again or did i say was another whatever it got 16 million so scream was a massive success it had 173 million dollars for a rated r movie at this time that's huge and i think the reason behind the success is because kevin williamson wrote the script with the lens of being a horror fan this was not written as a cash grab the slasher genre had largely become. It was written as a fan for fans. And plus, I mean, it was directed by one of the masters of horror who, from what I read and heard on the commentary track, um, Wes was not originally interested in directing it, which I cannot imagine a world where Russ Craven did not direct Scream. It wouldn't be what it is today. That's for sure. Um, But I just lost my train of thought on what I was going to say. I don't know, but slasher movies were dead at this time. Like no one really cared. It was so many re it was so many sequels and everything was just the same. It was all a cash grab and it was just as fast as we could pump these out. And I love these movies. I love bad slasher movies in the late eighties, early nineties, but nobody really fucking cared anymore. And scream changed the game. It, there were so many imitations of Scream after this. There was a whole meta screen or meta horror subgenre at the time. It was a huge success, whatever. But back to getting what I was saying about Wes Craven, I can't remember what his reasonings were for not wanting to do this movie. I think it was like scheduling conflicts. Um, also, it might have been him wanting to like branch out of the horror genre because he did eventually make his first non-horror film in. 1999 i believe after scream 2 called music of the heart 
that starred Meryl Streep, Angela Bassett, Gloria Esteban. So, I mean, it was whatever. Um, eventually, Wes did sign on, obviously, and Kevin said this about him. After he signed on, I was going to his house for lunch and I was like, oh, I'm going to go to his house. This is super cool. I want to see how a big hotshot movie director lives. And so I get in my car and I get lost driving up to the Hollywood Hills and I'm already late. And then I show up and he has all these pages of notes of my script and I just see them sitting there on the table and I'm like, oh no, this is going to be horrible. He's going to want to change everything. I've heard these horror stories. I know what happens from now. This is the moment I get kicked to the curb. I mean, I've always lived in the fear of that. And then it turned out that he was like, well, most of these are typos. There were a bunch of typos. He goes, we should just fix everything, don't you think? And it was a really great meeting because it was my first time with a director who was clearly taking the written word and starting to visualize it. He was starting to turn it into pictures. He was starting to paint the canvas. So... Drew Barrymore ends up getting attached to play the lead character of Sydney. And the this era of Drew Barrymore's movie stardom is actually my favorite. She what already had that Hollywood wild child reputation. She went to rehab at like what, 12, 13 or whatever. And um at the time she was doing movies like Poison Ivy, um, Gun Crazy, Doppelganger, Bad Girls, Boys on the Side, Mad Love, Batman Forever, and Everyone Says I Love You within the previous five years and i'm actually a huge drew barrymore fan and we'll definitely do an episode on her eventually i actually recorded an episode of another podcast that i that never got off the ground um where the first episode was talking about poison ivy and drew's career and her crazy life and it was fascinating but i actually um whatever she was attached to play <laughs> sydney and the studio was thrilled. They had a huge star in their slasher movie. This was going to be something new and different um, than all the other slasher movies beforehand. And they, they like had a real major movie star in the cast. So um, eventually, Drew reread the script and decided that she actually wanted to play Casey instead. And this is something Kevin Williamson always envisioned. And the studio thought it was a, like he always envisioned a big star being the opening kill. And the studio thought it was a great idea, and they kept the marketing very Drew heavy to mess with the audience's expectations. And Scream really like revitalized the horror genre, brought it back to life, changed it forever. And I think a lot of that has to do with Drew playing Casey instead of Sydney. It was so unexpected. It was new. It was different, and they took a chance on it, and it worked. And now here we are today. I don't know what the horror genre would have looked like if Scream wasn't a big hit or if it was a shit movie. It would probably look pretty different than what it is now. Probably would have taken much longer for there to be a, another boom in quality horror films. I don't, Not to say they aren't quality. Like I said, I love trashy or cheap or really I just love horror in general. It doesn't matter the quality of the movie. It's, it's all subjective anyway, but... <sighs> whatever now they needed a new sydney i've said whatever so many times i'm so sorry it kind of sounds um what's the word aggressive i don't mean to anyway they needed to recast sydney did i say it again 
They needed to recast Sydney after Drew switched parts and is down to three actresses, Nev Campbell, Alicia Witt, and Brittany Murphy. Um, and a big reason why Nev ended up getting cast was due to her ballet and athletic background. And she just had like the strength and a vulnerability that was needed. Um, but also she could move and run like an athlete, which was also needed. And they soon started casting the rest of the cast and began scouting for locations. And at one of the houses, when they were looking just if they wanted to shoot there, they found the ghost face mask. Although I think the hood or the shroud, I think is what they called it. I don't even know. Whatever. It was white instead of black. And they were like, that is the mask. We want that. So they were, they asked the owner if they could take it. They took it. And they kept trying to make the studio, they wanted to use this mask, but the studio did not want them to because they didn't have the rights to the mask and they couldn't capitalize off of it with like merchandise or whatever. Um, so the, they kept trying new masks, making it, trying to make it look like this ghost face mask. And they just could never recapture the magic. So they were just like, listen, you need to get the rights to this mask. And the studio, they were like, okay, fine. So that's how we got Ghostface. They did not design that mask. They just found it. <sighs> so the opening sequence, now we jump to shooting, was a five-day shoot on location and all accounts seemed to be very fun but very intense. Drew was not able, she was not allowed to meet Roger L. Jackson, the voice of the killer, um, but he was talking to her on the phone there. It wasn't just like, she was talking to someone on the side and they just edited it. It was really him on the phone with her. So Drew insisted that nobody laugh or giggle on set. She wanted to really create this horrifying experience and Wes supported her fully. And in 2011, Drew Barrymore said, I never want fake tears. I will come up with a mechanism with which it really makes me cry. I will run around until I'm hyperventilating. Um, he and I had the secret story being Wes. We would just talk about it every time and it just made me cry. And sorry, I totally messed that line up. We we would just talk about it every time because it would just make me cry every time I thought about it. That worked for tears. It didn't work for the hyperventilating. I still had to run a lot around a lot. So what she would do, the story was about a dead dog or something. So Wes would tell her about this dead dog. She would start crying and then she would run around to start hyperventilating. Um, but unfortunately, during this shoot and soon after the studio was receiving the dailies, which if you don't know, that is like the um, raw footage or whatever. And they were really unsure of what to make it. They honestly hated it and they did not hold back from sharing that with Wes they even went as far to call Wes a TV journeyman and a hack. And when editor Patrick Lucier, who I think, I think he edited all four of them, maybe just the first three, I can't remember. Um, he made a rough cut of the scene and sent it to the executives and it immediately shut them up because they, it was clear that this was something special. And on all accounts, it was special. It was a very special shooting experience as well. And Wes, again, I've said it before, he was like a father figure to everyone on set. Everyone loved him. And that is why the cast and crew kept returning. Um, but also, I think I forgot to mention in my notes, but like I, 
the one of the producers, Bob Weinstein, which we'll get into him later, um, after he saw the footage, he was like, what do I know about dailies? And he was like, I don't know, they were all assholes to Wes Craven. Um, and also the movie wasn't a big hit at the start. It originally opened with 6 million variety labeled the movie Dead on Arrival. And Wes and producer Marianne Maddalena, who also produced all four of Scream films, um, she might have even done five, I think. I don't know. Um, they went to a screening and they saw it was empty. And they were so discouraged, thinking that the movie would flop. And Williamson took as many writing jobs as he could before the film was officially labeled a flop. He was like, I got to take this right away because it's going to be a flop. It's going to destroy me. So I got to take some writing gigs and that's how we got i know what you did last summer and dawson's creek um but as we now know scream would become a global commercial and critical success that it is today and one of the most iconic films ever made it was a sleeper hit and that is the story of the original scream film and i think because we're kind of marty like hitting my hour mark before editing this episode Let's just jump right into Scream 2. Let's get down to business. The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. You know, cash in on all the movie murder hoopla. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. What are you talking about? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to make a successful sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. I am going to go through all the movies in the Scream franchise, but this is already so long. So I will cut down a little bit. I'll try to. But when Kevin Williamson was trying to sell the script for the first Scream, he wrote the script and the outline for the sequels in just three days. So they already knew where it would head if they had a sequel. And when this was a success, they were like, all right, let's fast track the sequel. So the sequel came out just under one year after the first one. So there was like serious hype for this so much so that that the first time the crew this is the first time the crew had to deal with online leaks the entire script was leaked for scream 2 and kevin williamson needed to do extensive rewrites he even wrote like dummy endings in case any leaked again uh when it came to casting it was obviously clear that they wanted to go big with their opening again and they wanted to have another young batch of talented actors with some name recognition. So originally, they were looking at Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler for doing the opening scene, but eventually they found Jada Pinkett Smith to fulfill the Drew Barrymore role, I guess. And as for the rest of the cast, Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Jamie Kennedy, and Liev Shriver all returned. I didn't really talk about Liev Shriver. Um, He was in the last one very briefly. Um, He had a very, very small role as Cotton Weary which uh, we saw newsreels of on TV. He was the one that Sydney put away in prison with her, um, with the false conviction or whatever. And he returned with a much more substantial role in the sequel. And as for the newscomers, Laurie Metcalf of Roseanne fame, Elise Neal, Jerry O'Connell, Timothy Oliphant, and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who was at the top of her game with her new hit show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And actually, I'm pretty sure she just wrapped on another Kevin Williamson film, which is I Know What You Did Last Summer, which a lot of people think I Know What You Did Last Summer is like a um, ripoff of Scream, which I am one of those people, but it is a good ripoff of Scream. I think if you're going to have a um, trilogy of 90s slasher films, I would do, if I'm not just going to do the Scream 
franchise, I would do the first Scream, the first I Know What You Did Last Summer, and Urban Legend. Those are kind of like the same kind of feeling. Although Scream is much better because Wes Craven is amazing. And Kevin Williamson is fucking amazing. And the cast is amazing. And the editing is amazing and blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Also in the um, cast is Luke Wilson, Heather Graham, and Tori Spelling, who cameo as Billy, Casey, and Sydney in the movie within a movie, Stab. So this is actually one of my favorite jokes in the movie because in the first Scream, um, when Sydney is asked who they think would play her in a movie, she says with her luck, Tori Spelling. And when Scream 2 decided to make a movie within a movie of the first event in the previous events, whatever, you know what I'm saying. They got Tori Spelling to play her. And I get, um, Wes was like, Tori Spelling was a great sport. So we were kind of poking fun at her and she was wonderful to work with, whatever. So amazing. Thank you, Tori Spelling. It's one of my favorite moments of Scream 2. Um, as for the story, it takes place entirely at Windsor College. It is like, I think it's like two years later after the events of the first one. And the events of the first one are being turned into a movie called Stab. And two characters, Maureen Evans and Phil Stevens, played by Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps, are on a date to see the movie, the premiere. Maureen is not at all interested in this movie. She's not interested in horror movies. She's not interested in seeing stupid white people getting killed. And she would much rather go see uh, the new Sandra Bullock movie. (laughs) And... They end up going and the theater is fucking wild. Everyone is dressed as Ghostface and they're losing their shit. And it is like Spider-Man No Way Home style losing their shit. Actually, it's worse than Spider-Man No Way Home. But also, if my theater don't look like that when I see the new Scream, I'll be pissed. Even though I find the Spider-Man No Way Home theater videos annoying as fuck. Like, sit down and watch the goddamn movie. Anyway, Phil goes to the bathroom and is stabbed through the ear in one of the stalls and honestly i can't ever watch that scene without the scene in fucking scary movie when the dick stabs him through the ear like (laughs) it's so fucking gross anyway maureen is watching the um stab and we see a much cheaper sleazier version of casey becker's death on screen played by heather graham and um Around them, the crowd is like pretending to stab each other with glow-in-the-dark green knives. And they're all going crazy. They're shouting. They're throwing popcorn. And it's not... um, I think I forgot something. Um, Ghostface ends up taking Phil's clothes. I forgot to say that. After Phil dies, he takes Phil's clothes, still wearing the mask, walks in. She doesn't think it's like that. Out of the ordinary, he's wearing the mask because everyone's wearing the mask. Um, They were handing it out at the theater for free, which okay (laughs) like they would ever spend money on that um but maureen notices blood on who she thinks is phil and she's continuously stabbed by ghostface and nobody thinks it's crazy because everyone is pretending to be stabbed so they're watching they're kind of like yes this is so exciting stabber they're like cheering it on they're loving it and she like makes it to the front of the movie screen she lets out this, like, she's all bloody. Some people notice because they got blood on themselves and they're like, what the fuck is going on? But when she gets to the screen, the screen, and she lets out this awful scream, um, awful as in horrifying, not like she did a bad job. Jada Pinkett Smith fucking kills this. 
it's this point everyone is starting to realize that something's wrong and she dies in front of everyone and Ghostface is able to escape in the crowd of masks. Now, I actually love this opening sequence. It is brutal. Like I said, Jada kills it. She's given less to do than Drew, um, but she is able to show her acting chops and she does great. The first one is terrifying because everyone has that fear that someone is going to break in your house at some point when you're completely alone. There's an intruder in the house. Like, yeah, it's horrifying. But I almost feel like this one is more horrifying because Maureen is in a crowd of people and nobody is helping her. They are cheering it on. So she's getting stabbed and all she's hearing is these people cheering on her getting stabbed. Like it's awful. They th- Obviously, they think it's a prank, but it's so weirdly uncomfortable. And to watch like, watch her, oh, it's so, it makes me like cringe. It's so horrible. And she lets out that like blood curling scream and she's just staring. She's staring at everyone. Everyone's staring at her. She's crying. It's so good. I love this sequence. I don't think it's as good as the first one, but I do think it is very close. Like it's as close as you could possibly get to the masterpiece that is the first opening. And I think it's just such a really unique idea. And I don't think anyone sees it coming. It's great. Um, but the following morning, Sydney Prescott is awoken in her dorm at Windsor. I don't know where Windsor is. I've read online that it's in Ohio. I don't think they ever say it's in Ohio in the um, movie, which would be weird because Randy's also there and he's going to film school in fucking Ohio when they live in California anyway. It makes no sense. So I'm going to believe it's California, but don't quote me on that. I don't know. Maybe it is Ohio. So it doesn't fucking look like Ohio because it was filmed in Atlanta. But... <laughs> Anyway, she wakes up at her dorm in Windsor with a phone call. She answers the call and it's the voice of Ghostface. But to the disappointment of Ghostface, Sydney now has caller ID and she knows it's just a prank. And Sydney's roommate, Hallie, played by Elise Neal, uh, reassures Sydney that the calls will die down once the hype of stab dies down. And soon Sydney and Hallie are notified to turn on the news and they learn of the killings of phil and marine and reporters are swarming windsor college because they were students there and sydney's like oh shit i need to find randy so she goes to his class and it is of course a film class because what else would it be with randy he loves movies and he's annoying he's always talking about the the rules of slasher films and whatnot and in this class there is cc cooper played by the always wonderful sarah michelle geller and mickey altieri i think is how you say it and he's played by timothy oliphant and in scream fashion the scene is very meta where the students the film students are discussing sequels and particularly how sequels are never as good as the original and i typically don't like scenes like this um like where college kids are debating in class because i have been in school for six years and i have yet to witness anything like this typically (laughs) Like realistically, it is just the professor asking a question and the class sitting there silently um, waiting for someone else to answer it. So whatever, it works here. Um, And I actually learned in the commentary track that this scene was added in reshoots just to give Sarah Michelle Gellar and Timothy Oliphant more screen time, which I actually think it helps narratively quite a bit and personally i just like sarah so much i think she should have had at least one more scene um that she then she already had and um yeah i'm pretty sure she had a limited time anyway because she was doing 
Buffy. So Sydney is afraid that everything is happening again and confides in Randy and they soon meet up with Hallie, Mickey, and Sydney's new boyfriend, Derek, who's played by Jerry O'Connell. And I love the inclusion of Derek. Williamson and Craven, as well as Nev um, Campbell, give a really nice character arc to Sydney um, regarding like trust in Derek is such a good red herring in the story. And I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll get into that later. But um, together, the new friend group witness the media frenzy on campus. And quickly, they find Gail Weathers because, of course, she's at the center of the media craziness. She had just written a book on the original murders that have been turned into the movie Stab. And so she's got a book and a movie to promote. So of course, she's there. And soon after, Randy and Sydney notice Dewey who has a limp from the first film after being stabbed. And he has come to Windsor College, but his motivations are much more pure than Gail's. He is there to make sure that Sydney is okay. Gail wants the story, wants to write another book. (laughs) But this is the start of a really nice brother and sisterly relationship, which is one of my favorite aspects of the series. They really make you care about these characters and it's what gives this franchise so much heart and a lot of times in slasher movies like if you look at saw yeah i don't care about any of those people i want to see them get ripped apart i literally don't care who they are don't care about their backstory with scream it's different i i need them to survive i love them and after tatum's death sydney was no longer like his best friend or his little sister's best friend like he she is now his sister and their relationship really strengthens with every film really all of their relationships strength strengthen with all their films so while gail is trying to get answers on the murders we meet two major players in the film as well we meet gail's new cameraman named joel played by Dwayne martin and a local reporter named debbie salt who is played by laurie metcalf debbie is trying to get close to gail under the guise of being a huge fan also just want to i just want to side note the sheriff is played by david arquette's real father which i did not know until the um commentary track but he doesn't get much to do here so it really doesn't matter he's here and there he's kind of like the sheriff in the last one which this movie is kind of like a retread of the first one but it's still great and we'll talk about that so gail decides to ambush sydney on camera and surprise her with cotton weary the man who was just exonerated for the rape and murder of his of her mother under sydney's account so like her testimony put him away and i can't remember if i mentioned this or not but another character arc for sydney in the first one was learning about the truth of her mother and how she was not the woman she thought she was in the last movie sydney really came to the realization that her mother had multiple affairs and the whole town knew about it it is really well acted on nev's part in this new angle um a new angle of this will be introduced in the third film which we will talk about trust me but i just wanted to make sure that i mentioned it so anyway sydney's ambushed by gail and cotton and all cotton wants is an interview with sydney because he is even more power and fame hungry than gail and sydney's upset by this ambush obviously and um pulls a retread of the first film like i said and backhands gail punched her in the face 
And Dewey confronts Gail and expresses his anger towards Gail for her his portrayal in her book. And later that night, Hallie drags Sydney to a sorority party so that she can get on the good side of two sorority girls, Lois and Murphy, played by Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi, who... <laughs> are some of my favorite red herrings and red herrings in this film because they're so their parts are kind of they're just dumb and it's so bizarrely funny especially because Portia de Rossi who I actually can't stand in real life but she has so many hilarious line readings here and I'm obsessed I love their characters even though they're like kind of pointless characters but whatever um, down the street of this party, Cece Cooper is alone in her sorority house as she plays sober sister, because I guess that's a thing, even though they're right down the street. And um, all the rest of the girls are at the party, and she gets a call from Ghostface, who we see sneak into the house while she's on the phone with him. It's so creepy. And this is one of my favorite scenes in um, probably the entire series, but it's way too short. It is way, 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 way too short. And that might just be because I love Sarah Michelle Gellar so much. Like, who doesn't? But this scene, it's just so good. And this scene plays out exactly how you'd expect. Cece's taunted by Ghostface before he pops out and attacks her. Cece runs up the stairs to the attic and Ghostface catches her, throws her through a glass window, stabs her in the back, and then throws her off the balcony, killing her. And when the sorority party learns of the new murder, they all rush over just like they did with Principal Wembley. They're like, so we got to see this. And Sydney goes back into the house of the party and the phone rings. And for some reason, Sydney's like, hmm, I should answer this, even though it is not her house. And it is, guess who? Ghostface. And the conversation is cut short when Ghostface shows up and attacks her. And she is easily escapes him because she is Sydney fucking Prescott and she's a badass and she fights him off. She reunites with Derek and Derek rushes inside the house and is slashed in the arm by Ghostface before escaping and before he can kill him. And Dewey is very suspicious of this because the cut missed all major arteries and nerves and Derek is still alive. And he's like, something is up with Derek. But soon after, Gail notices a pattern and that is the names of the murders match the original killings. So Maureen Prescott and Maureen Evans, and then Stephen Orth, um, Casey's boyfriend, and Phil Stevens, and then Casey Becker and Cece Cooper, who we learn her real name is Casey. I actually like this, but then um, once there's, it never goes anywhere because the killer doesn't kill someone with the last name of whatever Principal Himbley's name was. Um, this trend never continues after this point. So I like the idea, but realistically it go well, it just goes nowhere. <laughs> I like it. It's interesting. I wish they would have kept it, but it goes nowhere. So they put Sydney under police protection, but for some reason they were like, mm, Randy, Gail, and Dewey, we actually think you are perfectly safe and you're not getting any protection. So hmm, snooze you lose, I guess. <laughs> I never understood that, but Sydney has two cops following her at all times. They don't care about Dewey, Gail, and Randy. And I guess Dewey was a police officer beforehand. He's no longer a police officer because he has nerve damage from um, his stab wound. But Sydney, Derek, and Mickey, and Hallie are all at lunch together and they're discussing the possible suspect. And Derek is 
oh, bless Derek's heart. But he decides to start singing to Sydney in front of the entire cafeteria. And this scene is a pretty infamous scene, mainly because it fucking sucks. Um, <laughs> but I kind of like it. I think it makes Derek out to be very sweet. And he's an awful singer, but it's cute. And he ends up at the end of the scene giving Sydney his frat letters which is some sort of like necklace has the frat's letters on them i don't apparently this is a big no-no which i don't know um frats and sororities are stupid as fuck none of that shit fucking matters it's, none of it's real but they act like it is so whatever but the commentary <laughs> to get back to the movie listen i fucking hate sororities and frats okay that's all I really have to say on that. I fucking hate them. I think they're stupid. You're paying to have friends and um, rape culture. Anyway, this was actually the hardest film to edit because Wes had Jerry O'Connell actually sing on set instead of um, recording it in the studio and then having it played back in editing. So every take, Jerry was actually in a different key. So they had to try to edit it all together to make it sound like it was cohesive so yeah that's a little piece of trivia for you scream fans out there that awful scene was the hardest to shoot or not shoot edit but somewhere on campus dewey and randy are discussing the rules of a horror sequel of course because it's scream and we get our first scene that shows sydney as an actress i don't know why i find this so odd but sydney's a theater kid and i'm gonna be honest with you I don't like that. <laughs> what do you mean Sydney Prescott is a fucking theater kid? What do you mean by that? That ain't right. I'm sorry. It ain't right. But she's a theater kid and we see her on stage and she she's performing in this scene that I actually quite like. She's on stage and I don't know, it's like they're doing Shakespeare or something. I don't remember. She starts seeing Ghostface. Everyone's wearing these masks. And um, we aren't sure if it's just her PTSD or Ghostface is really there to taunt her. I lead more towards it being PTSD, but I would not put it past a certain killer in this one to pull a stunt like that. But after this, we start to see Sydney growing hesitant to let Derek in because he shows up and he's like, what's going on? And she's like, you're just showing up now. That's very fishy that's very fucking fishy. And you know, my last fucking boyfriend killed my mom and possibly raped her. I'm not exactly sure on that one. Um, killed all my friends, stabbed me. Um, so I don't know if I should trust you. So yeah. And on the other side of campus, Dewey and Randy are joined by Gail and Joel. And they're kind of discussing the killings in the courtyard and Gail keeps getting these phone calls from, I don't remember who. And she's like, oh my God, fucking leave me alone. Leave me the fuck alone. Leave me the fuck alone. Leave me a fuck alone. So Joel walks away, very suspicious. Gail gets another phone call and Randy answers it. But this time it's not whoever was calling Gail repeatedly. I think it's someone from her job and it's Ghostface. Why are you even here, Randy? You'll never be the leading man. Ghostface lets them know that he is watching them. Dewey and Gail are like, we got to find out who this is. So they start looking around at everyone who's on a phone, a cell phone, because I guess in the couple months after the first one, everyone got phones when it was so crazy that Billy had a phone. I don't know. Everyone apparently has phones in this courtyard and they're running to each person, tackling them. It's very kind of funny. 
Uh, I like this scene. It's one of my favorites. But again, it's an infamous one, way more infamous than the Derek singing scene, because this is the death of the beloved Randy. Before Gail and Dewey can find out who is on the other end of this phone, Randy is pulled into Gail's van and he is butchered. Pretty, pretty bloody. I'm going to be honest here, everyone. This is a safe space, okay? You can share anything here and I can share anything here. Safe space. I'm not a big fan of Randy. Uh, There. I said it. I'm not a huge fan. No hate to Jamie Kennedy. I think he is a very good, he's very good in the role. But Randy looks like he smells like cat piss. And he was probably the most annoying person in film school. And trust me, I have met a lot of annoying people in film school. And I know that motherfucker was irritating. But I get the appeal. And I do, I do think, I do think he's lovable. So yes, I get it. But I think a big character needed to die to make a point. And it has been a big complaint in three and four that characters, big characters weren't dying. So it did need to happen at some point. And I'm sorry to Randy, but I'm happy it was Randy. And it's a good death scene for the most part. We didn't actually get to like see him get killed. Unfortunately, I would have liked to have seen it. But we see the struggle and the aftermath. I think it's much scarier than a lot of the original Scream because it takes place in broad daylight in public. Like it, it's almost, oh, I just am putting this together, but like, it's just kind of like Maureen, how hers was in front of everyone in the movie theater. Randy's is in the middle of this courtyard in broad daylight. Like it's kind of, it's fucking scary. Wow. I like that. Well done, Wes Craven. (laughs) Anyway, the door swings open. They open the door and we get that awesome zoom shot of Gail and Dewey screaming. I love this shot. It is one of my favorite shots in the movie. And then Joel shows up very suspiciously and he faints. He's like, oh shit. And I just think it's so good. I love that shot of Gail. I love it. And I do think this is really interesting that this death was meant to be Gail, clearly, because she was the one that was called. It was her phone that was called. And if Randy didn't answer her phone, it would have been her in the back of that van. So I would just like to personally thank Randy for answering that phone because I cannot lose Gail Weathers. She is my favorite character. I can't lose her. And that is a message to Radio Silence, who is directing Scream 5. If you harm a hair on my Gail Weathers, I will hunt you down and I will fucking kill you. Anyway, (laughs) Sydney is still on the other side of campus, completely unaware of the death of Randy, her best friend. And she's in like the library or something. And she gets an instant message from the killer. And the two cops who are there, who are the dumbest fucking cops ever, do the dumbest fucking thing ever. And they like pull her aside. They leave her in the back by herself to go look at the other computers. I'm sorry. Aren't you supposed to be watching her? What the fuck? Anyway. While they're being fucking dumb and not looking at Sydney, Cotton Weary creepily shows up and he's like, listen, bitch, we need to have our fucking interview with Diane fucking Sawyer, okay? And he's threatening her. He's putting his hands in her face and um, he's very, very threatening. 
the police see what's up. They grab him. They take him to the police station. And this is where Sydney learns of Randy's death. And the police, de- the police decide to get Sydney out of there, put her in protective custody. And this is when we get more of Gail's, like the morals of Gail in that story arc, which um, started all the way back in the last one. Gail, can she? Gail, I think, would be labeled as a anti-hero. You know, actually, I think she's like the perfect blueprint for anti-heroes. She is an anti-hero. Disregard what I said before. She is an anti-hero and she has very questionable morals. She's very fame hungry and she is a total bitch. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Don't come for me. I am not a misogynist. I think that is her best quality. And I'm gonna be honest here. I modeled my actions and my attitudes and the things I would say a lot of a lot I modeled it a lot after Gail when I was like trying to deal with bullying for being gay and which is really fucking stupid if you think of it in hindsight because they were like why are you acting like a girl you act like a girl so in my brain I was like I'm going to act like this woman on tv to get through this bullying the I don't know what the fuck I was thinking so I love this I love that she's a bitch but at the end of the day she will fight for what is right, unlike Cotton, which uh, we will see later. But, you know, I'm just going to mention, I don't think I, do I? Anyway, originally in one of the other drafts, Cotton was meant to like stumble onto the killings. And then he, I'm just spoiling it, I guess, whatever. Sorry if you haven't seen it yet. I'm going to spoil the ending. Stumbles onto the killings and he kind of goes with it and kills Sydney, I think. Mm, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that was one of the drafts that he wasn't a ghost face, but when he stumbles on it, he takes the opportunity to kill Sydney, or at least try to. I might be making all that up. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's true. I think that's true. I read a lot of shit about Scream, so mm, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. But anyway, in Scream 1, Gail did not need to go back to the house and save Sydney, which she actually does twice, I do want to mention. She could have just seen what's up when she went back to the house to like, do what she's doing, see that Billy and Stu, what they were doing um, after she left the van, after she crashed it, go, st- go to the house, see what's going on with Billy and Stu, and then let them do what they're going to do. And then come forward after being like, I survived this, but this is what I saw and become like kind of a hero and they get taken away or whatever. She gets all the glory, but instead she sneaks in, grabs the gun and saves Sydney. And then when she's like unconscious and then gains reconsciousness, conscience, conscience, whatever, she returns again and shoots Billy before he can kill Sydney. And would Cotton do the same? No, he wouldn't. And here we see that she actually did care about Randy and therefore cares about Dewey and Sydney as well, and that they are family in a weird way through their weird tragedy that they went through. After his death, she feels really guilty and responsible in ways, and she tells De- <laughs> she tells Debbie's there, and she tells Debbie to fuck off. And then she she tra- basically Debbie was like, "I need the scoop. What happened? Another person died. I need the scoop." And she's like, "Fuck off. You don't know what you're doing. Get the fuck out of here." And classic Gail. And her classic Gail way, she's like, fuck off. So um, she tells Dewey that she actually doesn't care about the story anymore. And she really just wants to find the killer. And I believe that she really means this. I feel bad, Dewey. 
I feel really bad. I never say that because I never feel bad about anything. But I feel bad now. Is this just another brilliant Gail Weathers performance? There are no cameras here. I just want to find this fucker. I really do. Gail has just had one of the best growths in the series, and this is one of the best moments in that growth or that character arc. And Joel's like, hey, peace out. And she he leaves um, footage he was taking of the crowds during all of the um, filming they were doing. So her and Dewey decide that they're going to take that footage of the crowds and see if there's anything suspicious on there, if they can find out the killer. Since the van is now a crime scene, they don't have a monitor to watch it. So they're like, we got to find some place. And then like whatever, somewhere else, Sydney and Hallie say goodbye to Derek and they go with the two officers who are assigned to Sydney. They're assigned to, I don't know where they're even going to take her, to be honest. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Derek is taken away by his frat brothers and and Murphy and Lois. (laughs) First of all, I kind of love that their names are Murphy and Lois. Like I I want to name I want to get a cat and I want to name it like Murphy Lois or something. Oh my god, that is so cute. Nobody fucking take that. I'm naming my cat Murphy Lois. So he's taken, he's taken to the stage that Sydney's play was going to take place at and he is tied up and they like haze him for giving the necklace to Sydney like it fucking matters. They like pour beer on him and they're partying around him they strip him from his clothes write shit on him i don't know classic hazing i don't know i've never been hazed i think it's fucking stupid if someone tried to haze me i'd be like um no this is so dumb like i genuinely don't care about you people this is so weird like why whatever i don't know again frats are fucking dumb and sydney agreed with me she said it's worse than organized religion and i agree with her i agree with her 100 percent. anyway while that's going on, Dewey and Gail find a classroom, um, likely one for film school. It looked a lot like the ones I've been in. I mean, what am I saying? It looks like any fucking classroom. It's so annoying. <laughs> they put the tapes in there and they are watching, I don't know, the footage they're taking. And while they're watching them, they realize that they actually like each other and they start making out again, just like the original. And in the middle of them, like hooking up, like Dewey is cop and a feel of her titty he, they are hooking up um <laughs> they notice that the footage um changes and it is footage that the killer took of the murders somehow that switches i don't know and gail's like that's not my footage i don't know how that happened somehow it changes again and it's footage being taken right now and this was like what this was 97 filmed in 96 i believe maybe filmed in early 97. I can't remember. Wouldn't you need like them little cables, them colored cables, the red, blue, white, or not red, blue, white, red, yellow, white, which the yellow and white always looked the same when it's plugged in. So you never know what the fuck hole to put it in. You know what I'm talking about? Like that would need to be plugged in. How the fuck is that happening? It doesn't matter. I'm just going with it. They see themselves on the screen. They look around and someone in the projection room it's Ghostface. I mean, they see Ghostface in the projection room. So Dewey, with his little limp, runs up the stairs, this little hand stuck on his chest, because, you know, that's how he walks now. And he doesn't see him anywhere. So 
he can't find Ghostface. And then the killer pops up behind Gail and attacks. And she fights him off. She hits him with a phone. And we get my favorite chase scene in the entire series, hands down. I know I've said like, oh, this is my favorite scene. This is my favorite scene. This is my favorite chase sequence. It is one of my favorite chase sequences in all of horror. It is like, oh, it's so fucking good. It's so good. So Gail is like running down the hallways of this school and she's trying to find all like a door to unlock and they're all locked and she's going door to door and the score is like swelling up and it's just perfectly matches the scene. And I love it. I love it so much. It is so perfect. Anyway, Gail finds an unlocked door and Ghostface follows, of course, as he does, as he does. And the second half of the chase is Gail and Ghostface playing like a cat and mouse style chase. Like they're silent, like a silent did I say silent before? I don't know. A silent cat and mouse game. And Gail's trying to hide behind these like soundproof walls placed throughout the room because they're like in a some sort of um, recording studio or something. It's some sort of media um, class. So Gail is able to barricade herself in one of the room or hide in one of the rooms. Um, it's a, in the recording studio. She is, isn't able to. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. She didn't barricade herself. She realizes there's no lock. She's like, oh, fuck. So she's hiding and then she sees Ghostface on the other side of the glass in there because she's like in the recording part, I think, or no, she's in the, whatever, she's on one of the sides of the recording studio, okay? And it's soundproof glass and is like, or Dewey walks in on the other side and he's like banging on, he's like, Gail, hello. She can't hear him because it's soundproof glass. And then she turns around and Ghostface is behind Dewey, stabbing him in the back, blood coming out of his mouth all over the glass. It's a very dramatic scene. You can't hear Gail throughout the whole thing. She's crying, screaming. And Dewey drops. And it's awful. I love Dewey so much. Ghostface tries to go through the door after he sees she's in there. And then she pushes a shelf in front of the door. And Ghostface can't get in, but his little arm, he does the little his arm will swing in it's so cute i love it <laughs> you know like the sound of the knife we swing in it it's like you know what i'm talking about i don't know why i ask questions in here like i'm gonna get a response because i'm literally sitting alone in a room at almost four in the morning recording this and i'm an hour and a half into the recording without editing it lol anyway she barricades herself in there. Dewey's been brutally stabbed and she's hiding, basically. Killer can't get in. She's safe. So back on the other side of campus, um, Sydney and Hallie are in the back of the police car with, like I said, the two of the stupidest, most the stu most stupid fucking cops ever. They are so stupid. And when I said I was going to go back to something with like where they're going, I was like, I don't know where they're going. We'll get back to that. Well, I'm back here. So Sydney's like, where are we? Where are we going? And <laughs> these cops say the most inappropriate thing ever in a time like this. They're like, So where are you taking us anyway? If we tell you, we'll have to kill you. Don't ask, don't tell. Girl, excuse me. At a time like this, that is what you say. You say this to the Sydney Prescott what the fuck and they're like tee hee tee hee so funny so funny we'll have to kill you <sighs> anyway ghostface punches through the glass of the front the front like the driver's seat punches the guy slits his throat and the other cop i don't know there's fight he's thrown out of the car ghostface he's 
in the driver's seat and the one cop who got thrown out of the car who didn't get his throat slashed he jumps or he's in front of the car and he's like gonna shoot or whatever and it's like motherfucker why are you gonna shoot don't shoot sydney and hallie are in the back seat you're crazy anyway ghostface is like doesn't hesitate at this he just steps on that gas and hits him on the car like he's on the hood of the car now hits him with his car he doesn't go under he goes over he's holding on to the car with his gun and Ghostface is like driving like Cruella DeVille he's like teehee teehee driving everywhere and he drives through like a construction um site and like this is when we get the most gory death so far in the series and one of the um gnarliest ones in the whole series like as a whole even considering uh three and four and when they are driving through the construction thing, they end up crashing and a like metal pipe or something flies through the windshield or flies through the back of the head of the officer and then through the windshield. Ugh. It is so good. So good. So good. So good. Ghostface goes unconscious from the crash and Sydney and Hallie are locked in the back seat, unable to get out because it's a cop car. Obviously they can't get out. So, but fortunately for them, the pipe that just went through the officer's head, um, <laughs> and it's on the hood of the car oh and we see like the officer's head still shaking after it was stabbed through you get a close-up of it it's such a good effect but that pipe went through the gate that separates the front and back seat of a police car and oh i forgot i forgot 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 um wes said in the com- commentary track that the pipe was actually supposed to go through the officer's back but when they did the stunt it went through the dummy they used dummy thankfully because uh this there was a mistake it went through the dummy's head instead and they just went with it i guess so anyway, Sydney and Hallie, they're like, we got to pull the gate down. So they pull, they start pulling the corner of the gate down. We get like a real classic scene of horror tension and Sydney climbs through and she's like, I can't get out of this side because we're pinned against a wall. So she has to climb over ghost face and it's really fucking stupid because she should just like pull off his mask right away. But who cares? It it gets a good, a good scare, it builds tension. And the, like the actions are stupid, but I think ghostface was actually fucking with them i think ghostface was awake through this and just kind of wanted to get sydney to the final showdown location or whatever i don't know i think he's fucking with them maybe he's not maybe he is unconscious who fucking cares but sydney tries to take the mask off but she hits the horn and at the last second decides to just leave they get out hallie has to climb over ghostface as well and sydney's like listen i need to go back i need to see who it was i'm sick of running and hallie's like stupid people go back sydney stupid people go back so then Sydney goes back, Ghostface is gone, of course, because that is a classic Ghostface. And when Sydney turns around, Ghostface is behind Hallie and he kills Hallie from behind when stabbing her in the chest. I love this part because there's like a flashing sign, like an arrow sign that's basically flashing to go like leave, like get the fuck out of there. It's like, hello, don't come back, leave. And she does come back and gets her friend killed. So Sydney, that death is on you. I'm just kidding. But anyway, Sydney's dead. Sydney has, or not Sydney, Hallie's dead and Sydney has to run away. So when Gail feels safe enough to leave that room that she barricaded herself into, she runs into a bloody con weary and Gail's like, oh, hell no, this is scary. You're a killer. And Con tells her that it's Dewey's blood. He just found him. He didn't do anything. She does not believe him. She runs out of the payphone outside where she finds Debbie Salt making a call. And she's like, get the fuck off the phone. And she's like, Gail, I'm in the middle of a story. <laughs> and she's like, I've got your goddamn story. And then she's like, oh, okay. 
And then Sydney hears music from the theater. So she runs to it looking for help, thinking people are in there. And when she gets there, she finds Derek is tied up from the hazing and he's sleeping. Cause it's, I don't know, I guess it's been a while. And Ghostface shows up and decides to unmask himself right away and reveals himself to be Mickey. Surprise, Sydney. What the fuck? Do you remember Mickey? Because I barely do. Or don't. Maybe don't's the right word. I don't. I almost don't know who the fuck this is. But it's Mickey. So I have mixed feelings on that. I think he's all right as a killer, but we also, like, we just did not get enough of him pre-unmasking. Uh, and I learned originally he had even less scenes, but they added two scenes in the reshoots, one of which was that scene with Sarah Michelle Geller. Just, they were like, we don't have him in this movie that much. We need to add him. Mickey starts insinuating that Derek is his partner and begins messing with Sydney's head and she doesn't know what to think but before she can make a decision Mickey just shoots him in the chest as he's still tied up to this little dangly star thing he shoots him with the cop's gun which we whatever we see that sitting there so we knew it was going to come back you know in a movie when they show something you know it's going to come back and we knew that gun was going to come back so he shoots him right in the chest and Sydney had the chance to save him and she didn't and she's like oh shit and she's like i am so sorry and derek tells her that he would have never hurt her and it's so sad and then all of a sudden his body starts getting raised up to the ceiling because he's like tied to this prop thing and they raise it to the ceiling and <laughs> um derek's like now who could that be is that my partner and gail enters and sydney's like gail and gail's like bitch you know it's not me uh-uh and then in comes in Debbie Salt holding Gail in at gunpoint. Now, Debbie does show up a little bit more than I think I said. I think I'm missing a couple scenes that she's in, but they're always so short kind of comedic scenes where she's just kind of always in the background. So I actually love this and I love her reveal because right away, Sydney recognizes her as Mrs. Loomis. What? Billy's mother. Smartest twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? And the reason Gail did not recognize her is because Mrs. Loomis lost a lot of weight and according to Sydney, had a lot of work done. It's called a makeover. You should try it. Look a little tired yourself there, Gail. And Mickey's motivation is that he just wants to get caught and get famous from the trial. He wants to like blame the movies and get off. And he's like, this is going to be the new OJ. And um, so he wanted fame. Mrs. Loomis, she's like, I just want revenge. Don't care. Don't care whatsoever. She met Mickey online and used him to get her plan going. And then she's just like, actually, I don't need you, Mickey, and shoots him because her plan is to pin all the killings on Mickey and make it look like Sydney and him got in a big shootout and it killed them both. And that's a solid plan. And, the, you know, Mickey wanted to get caught. It would have ruined her plan, but it's a solid plan. But she would have kept him, she should have kept him alive because. <laughs> She would have probably gotten away with it if she kept him alive instead of shooting him right away. She could have just, um, she could have just killed everybody, let Mickey think the plan was going to go through and then kill Mickey when he's not thinking it. But now she's got to kill Sydney and Gail. Suspicious or not suspicious, stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> so she kills Derek or not Derek. Mickey. She kills Derek. 
Oh my God, I said it again. She kills Mickey before they can kill everyone else. And then she's got to do her big spiel to um, Sydney or whatever. But when she shoots Mickey, Mickey also shoots his gun and it hits Gail in the stomach and Gail falls off the stage. And this like weird dive roll onto this table. It's kind of iconic in her little white top and her blonde or her not blonde, her little um, bob with her red streaks. Love it. I love the look of Gail in this movie. Also, Courtney looks so good in this movie. She look, like she's hot in this movie. She's hot. Like this is the best she's. No, I don't know. Maybe Scream Four. She's the best she's ever looked. Like she looks so good in Scream Four. She's so pretty. I love Courtney Cox. Oh, Nev Campbell's really pretty too. Oh, this cast is so pretty. Anyway, um, I think I did forget to mention that Mickey and Sydney got into a little scuffle beforehand, and like she's like. He's like, I'm going to be like Billy or whatever. And she was like, yeah, you're forgetting one thing about Billy. And she's like, I fucking killed him. And then she hits him with Derek or she like whips Derek's like the letters he gave her, cuts his face, whatever. Like there's that. And anyway, now it's just her and Mrs. Loomis slash Debbie Salt. And um, I have mixed feelings on this sequence as well because it looks cool, but it also doesn't make any goddamn sense. Um, because I don't know why Sydney does the thing she does. Sydney starts using stage props to fight off Mrs. Loomis. And we do get a really, um, oh, I, it's even better than the shot of Gail screaming. We get an amazing shot. We get two amazing shots in the scene. One of the up close of Mickey's eyes after he's been shot. And then two, when, um, Debbie is looking through like this gunshot hole she made through the stage door or something. She sees a shot. There's like a shot of Sydney in like the circle that is the bullet hole or whatever. And she has this ax and she's chopping these, the ropes that are holding the stage lights are heavy as fuck. And you know, that all makes sense. Love that, that she would be dropping those. Cause I've worked with those. They're fucking heavy. If it hit Mrs. Loomis, kill her instantly. But then, you know, Sydney doesn't stop there. <laughs> she starts making the paper flames go up and the she starts shaking the um this like metal, I don't even know what it is, like a sheet of metal to make thunder sounds. Like I get it's like working with the scene to make it look good and like the atmosphere. But girl, why are you wasting your time making sounds of thunder and lightning? Why are you doing that? Kill the bitch. I'm not understanding. Why are we going through the theatrics? It ain't doing nothing. You're wasting time making the thunder sound. But anyway, it looks great. Love it, love it, love it. And I can't remember, Wes said that he used the the um, the um paper flames because it was in a movie. Was it a Hitchcock movie? I can't remember what movie it was. I might have be pulling Hitchcock out of my ass. <laughs> Hitchcock out of my ass. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that I'm 12. Anyway, made no sense. Made no sense. Made no sense. And then I don't like this. So um, first, there was a light that fell down and Sydney kind of barricaded herself in this, um, like behind the behind the stage because the stage had its own door. That was like a prop door, whatever. And when one of the lights fell down, it took the piece of the wall down. So Debbie could have walked back to the backstage and just shoot Sydney. But instead, she's like, I'm going to climb this wall for some reason. And then Sydney's like, oh, I'm going to make those bricks drop on you. But they're fake bricks, but they make them sound like real rocks. 
So I, I don't love that either, but whatever. Debbie, it is a pretty good fight between them. It's very well choreographed. I'm not going to lie. It's very well choreographed, very, very well edited. It's pretty great. It just also makes no sense logistically, but whatever. So Debbie attacks her again after she's all bloody from their fight and almost successfully kills her. But then Cotton shows up with a gun. And remember I said in like one of the drafts that may or may not be real. I can't remember. There was an idea that Khan was going to kill her. And we're going to get to that in a second. So he's like, what the fuck is going on? He's holding them at gunpoint. He's like, you need to tell me what's going, what's happening. So Debbie holding a knife to Sydney is like begging him to let her kill Sydney and tells him that once Sydney's dead, he will be the main character to the press. And that's exactly what he wants. And he points the gun at Sydney in that moment. But Sydney tells him that she will do the Diane Sawyer interview. So Cotton then shoots the gun. And the audience is unaware of who he just shot. He's, we're like, uh, what'd you just do? But of course, Sydney, she starts coughing. She's like, <laughs> like classic um, movie moment when you realize they're alive after they've been shot or something. And she comes to, and she does not trust Cotton whatsoever because why the fuck would you? Why would you? So Cotton's like, oh, I would never hurt you. I would never hurt you. I just want you to know that. Such bullshit. She sees that bullshit and she doesn't hesitate. She's like, listen, I know you wouldn't hesitate to kill me. So give me the fucking gun. So he gives her the gun. And then Sydney and Gail help Gail up, who survived the gunshot, to the stage. And she takes the other gun. And um, this is a good thing. She takes the gun because Mickey pops up for one last scare, just like they always do. And Sydney and Gail shoot the absolute fuck out of him. Shoot the absolute fuck out of him. Like so many bullets. Overkill. Kill him. I don't even know why he gets up. He could have survived. And then he could have just blamed the movies like he did. But no, he decides to jump up and they kill him. Both of them together. So now if you're keeping track. Oh, wait, let me finish this. So after they shoot the fuck out of him, just to be safe, Sydney looks over at Mrs. Loomis and just shoots her in the head and walks away. She doesn't jump up. She just shoots her in the head. She's like, mm, double tap. Thank you, zombie land. And I think it shows like the coldness Sydney has developed since these murders started. And in the end, Joel returns with his camera to do his report with Gail, um, like of the murders or whatever. And to her surprise, Dewey is rolled up on a stretcher with one of the paramedics stating that the scar tissue from his previous stab wound saved his life. And Gail drops the mic and runs to him. She gets in the ambulance with him, completely dropping her story, doing what is right, obviously, something Cotton wouldn't do. I fucking hate that man. I hate that man. I hate that man. Um, but when the reporters rush to Sydney, she tells them that the real hero is Cotton, which is just a stupid fucking, it's a lie. And he has this stupid fucking grin on his face. Like, it's true. Thank you so much. And they go to him and he hands them his card telling them that he has a price, um, but teases that it would make a really good movie. And Scream 2 ends with Dewey and Gail together and Cotton getting the fame he wanted and Sydney being left alone for once. Um, now if you're keeping track of who's killed who, Sydney has killed Billy and Stu with the help of Gail. And then 
Cotton killed Mrs. Loomis, and then Gail and Sydney both killed um, Derek. So that is our leaderboard for Ghostface killings. Sydney with two, Gail with one, Cotton with one. I'm sorry, Sydney with three, Gail with one, Cotton with one. Um, and now I love Scream. I Scream 2. Love it, love it, love it. I do take issue with how much of a retread it is of the first one, but it's a retread with different consequences and just overall kind of a bigger story. And um, I think it's just about as good as the um, the first one. It's just as good. It's... <sighs> It's just as good as a sequel to an iconic movie can be. It is great. And I know a lot of people actually prefer this one to the original. Can't be mad at that. I think both are five-star movies. I think this one is fun and has great character development for the core three. And it really solidified the heart that the series had. And the cast is so good. And Wes and Kevin are able to capture so much of the magic that was in the first one and i i love this one i can watch it i can watch them all on repeat and i do watch them on repeat but yeah i love scream too i love it and i feel like i was going to say something else but um i'm already hitting hour 2 people i'm hitting hour 2 so I need to start, let's jump into Scream 3. Let's go through the plot of that one. Talk about what I love, talk about how it was made, you know. You know, the usual, you know, the usual. Sid, come here. Mother needs to talk to you. Everything you touch, Sid, dies. Okay, so let's just get straight into Scream 3. It's the black sheep of the Scream movies, and Scream 3 is probably the one Scream film that is categorized as not good but i think it is still fun and i think it's good but i know a lot of people don't and it is the biggest tonal change in the series and veers it veers more into comedy like they scream always has its comedic moments but scream 3 is like especially comedic this kind of is well not kind of it is because of the columbine massacre that had just happened before and the studio was really afraid of showing violence on screen. And at one point they were like, listen, Wes, we don't even want blood. Don't show blood. And Wes was like, listen, we're going to do a screen movie or we're not going to do a screen movie. Like, come on. If we're going to do a screen movie, there's going to be blood. And they were very difficult on the making of this movie. This caused the story to completely change from its original outline, which would have been so fantastic the original story was that there were the one that was outlined by kevin williamson when he did the three or when he did the outlines for two and three um was that there was going to be a new set of murders involving kids in woodsboro and when sydney and gail and dewey enter the bloodbath all the dead kids would stand up and reveal that they were all in on it and faked it 
and they were in cahoots with Stu, who was in prison, because I think he could have survived that one, and they could have easily just been like he was in prison in the second one, because he kind of just had a TV dropped on his head, to be honest. Like, I think he would have been fine, but, you know, he did get electrocuted. I think his face went through the glass, so whatever, he's dead. But... I would have loved that so fucking much. It sounds so good. Them walking into, like having Sydney Prescott walk into a bloodbath and then all the bodies rise up and they're like, actually, we're the killer and we're going to kill you. I'm sorry. That's fucking amazing. That's incredible. That's incredible. But the studio was like, oh, actually, we're not going to allow that because we don't want kids involved in violence in this one because of Columbine. So that really sucks. It really, really, really fucking sucks that they had to cut this because I think it would have been so good. It would have fit the tone of Scream. It would have been amazing. And I actually think that they could do this in the new one, even though I think Kevin Williamson, I think I read that he did this plot line in like the show The Following or something, that Kevin Bacon show that he wrote or developed or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I will talk about what I think is going to happen in the new Scream. But let's move on. This one was released in 2000 and retained most of the crew from the last two besides Kevin Williamson, who had to step away because he got huge and successful from Scream and had other obligations and was able to return. Um, He did, however, write that outline. Um, But I, I believe it was the one that needed to be changed. And I don't think he did any more. Maybe he did. I'm not sure. I think he might have been a producer, but I'm not sure if he was. I don't think he was. Uh, I don't know. I I do want to say this. You can tell that he didn't write this one. Not to be a hater, not to be a hater, but you can tell he didn't write this one. The writing is one of the roughest aspects of this movie. And it also seems like all the good lines were um, ad-libbed by the cast, like Parker Posey in particular, instead of being written for them. But this script was written by Aaron Kruger, who had quite a successful career himself. Um, He wrote the movie, The Screen or The Ring. He wrote The Brothers Grimm. He wrote Transformers 2, 3, and 4. He wrote The Scarlett Johansson Ghost in the Shell. He wrote Dumbo and the new Top Gun sequel that was supposed to come out like four years ago or whatever, but they're like COVID. And then they just never released it. Like, does anybody care about Top Gun anymore? That is old news. There's When is that even coming out? I don't know. I've never even seen the original. But I don't think I blame him, Aaron Kruger, for the writing because in the commentary track, it seems like the cast and crew were writing on the spot and were continuously needing to change the script at the studio's request and them just trying to make everything work. Like they were writing all the time on set. Wes was always writing on set. Everyone was writing on set. And... This commentary track is actually something I want to discuss a little bit because, like I said, I listened to all four and this one stood out a lot because with all the other ones, nothing but great things were said. The first track was done with Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson. The second and third was Wes, uh, producer Marion Madalena and editor Patrick Lussier. And the fourth was Wes, Nev Campbell, Emma Roberts, and Hayden Panettiere. And all of them but three were 
almost exclusively praising the cast and crew and talking about how things were made and how fun they were to make and that it was difficult to make because it was cold out or whatever, or this was a reshoot and um, they're so talented and we love this, blah, blah, blah. But three was like the exact opposite. They still praised people like Wes still praised his cast and crew, but also like the whole time everyone was pointing out mistake after mistake, like continuity errors with um, a shot of Sydney's head was changed in a shot that changed, like, you know what I mean? Like, and one shot she's looking up when they cut away and then cut back, she's looking down or whatever. And he, they're like pointing out all those mistakes. They're talking about how they had to rewrite so much and everyone was pissed because all the rewrites every day and just how difficult things were. And it really sounded like three was not as fun to make because of the studio intervention. And I do not think everyone was very happy with three at all. And that is sad. Because I think they could have had the best one in the series if they were able to make what they wanted to make. But, um, yeah, it seemed like it was kind of a rough shoe. I, from the sound of Wes when he was talking, I don't think he loves this movie. I think he was happy it was done once it was done because it was just difficult with the studio constantly being afraid of violence on screen because violence was always, violence was being or they were blaming the violence on movies and tv for real life violence and that was kind of a topic in the in all of them really but yeah it was rough for them to make this one so scream one and two both made exactly the same amount of money at the box office both made 173 million dollars so the studio increased the budget for three one had a budget of 15 million two had a budget of 24 and three had the grand budget of 40 I believe, but now I'm thinking that Scream 4 had that budget. I don't know. They increased the budget. That's all I remember. I don't think you can honestly tell all that much because all three look very similar in budget, but unfortunately, Scream 3 made $10 million less than the other two installments with $162 million, which to be fair, is still a success. They still made their money back, I think. I don't know how much it was to promote the movie or whatever, but it's still a success. $10 million off of the first one isn't like that much of a huge difference in box office for sequels. Like typically sequels do go lower with box office returns, but this one, it wasn't terrible at all, at all, but it was less than the first two. Um, Scream 3, Courtney Cox, Leif Schreiber, David Arquette, Roger L. Jackson, Jamie Kennedy, and Nev Campbell all returned. Lynn McCree, I think is how you say her name. She returned as Maureen Prescott, um, but this time with the speaking role. And Lawrence Hecht and C.W. Morgan also briefly returned in cameos, reprising their role of Neil Prescott and Hank Loomis. And Wes said it was not hard at all to convince the cast to return, but it was hard to work with their schedules as they were all big stars post-Scream. So when it came to Nev Campbell, she was only available for 20 days of shooting because I think she was also filming, I think it was Drowning Mona, but I can't remember. And I can't remember that movie is good or not. I saw it years ago, but that led to more rewrites because she was unavailable for part of filming and she was no longer had a big role as originally written. So yeah, as for newcomers, Patrick Dempsey, Parker Posey, Emily Mortimer, Matt Kessler, Patrick Warburton, Jenny McCarthy, Scott Foley, Lance Erickson, Henriksen, sorry, and Kelly Rutherford joined the cast with cameos by Jay and Silent Bob 
and Carrie Fisher. And yes, you heard that correctly. Jay and Silent Bob and Carrie Fisher. (laughs) So as for the story, it opens with probably the least exciting. Actually, I'm not going to say probably. It was the least exciting opening to the franchise. Um, I actually hate it. I don't hate it. Actually, I do hate it. Um, actually, I don't want to say I hate it, but I, it's, it's fair. Like I watch it and you go, um, okay, well that happened. Like, it's just like, whatever. It's not great, which Scream is known for its great opening. So it's kind of like, um, okay. And it opens with Cotton, who is now the host of some tacky talk show called 100% Cotton, which I have to admit is insanely clever. I love that. I hate, I hate that bastard, but I love that. I love that title. <laughs> um, he's in a car and he gets a call from a woman. Turns out the voice is just Ghostface with using a different voice changer, which we will definitely be talking about later. Basically, Ghostface wants to know where Sydney is. And he tells Cotton that his girlfriend, Christine, played by Kelly Rutherford, is in danger and con rushes home and christina's attacked a killer messes with her using a voice changer to sound like cotton and um you know i can suspend belief enough that ghostface has a voice changer that gives him roger l jackson's voice Mm, but when it when he has everyone's voice it's a bit much so yeah it's kind of shit i hate that aspect of this movie i hate the voice changer but I really don't want to bore you with the details of this scene because it is just boring. I don't care. Both Cotton and Christine are killed in unforgettable way or not unforgettable, forgettable ways. Like I just flat out don't care. I mean, I get that it was, um, they killed Cotton and he's a big character. And I think Kelly was in 90210, I think, or Melrose play. She's in one of them. Maybe she's not. I don't know. All I know her from is the mom and gossip girl. So it's just so bland. I don't care who these people are. I hated Cotton and I didn't even enjoy seeing him die because it was just kind of boring. No disrespect, but it was boring. Yeah. I'm not sure if you can tell or not, but this is definitely my least favorite in the franchise. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, okay. I don't want to say it's not bad, but it's not great. It's just like, Meh. Meh. That's all I got to say on that. So after Cotton's death, we cut to Sydney Prescott, who is living somewhere in the mountains with a dog, a security system, and many, many locks on her doors. And, you know, as one would. So all power to her. It's a nice development, I think, that it shows that she's like afraid of it. Like we're seeing the effects of Ghostface had on her. You know, she's in hiding, but this is the thing that really gets me. So Sydney's now working as a uh, crisis counselor on the phone, like a hotline person. And I think that's a nice development. It shows like how she's trying to help people with what she's been through, blah, 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 blah. But what is our girl doing with that phone? I don't mean to victim blame. I really don't. I really don't. But she's just asking for a ghost face to call her up. I'm sorry. I don't want to be like, oh, she's asking for it. But what the fuck are you doing with that phone? Ugh, she's asking for it. Anyway, so then we cut to Gail, who's doing, she's got the god-awful bangs. 
She's got the bangs, given the lecture at some college. And allegedly, these bangs were suggested by David Arquette. And I can't, I can't not talk about these bangs without talking about this movie. It's like the most infamous thing in Scream. Um, so David Arquette suggested them, who the two were actually married in real life at the time, and he suggested they give her this Betty Page look. And I get that. I really do. I think that could have been really cute on her. So I just want to know why on God's green earth did someone do that to her fucking hair? It is like one of those things I ordered versus what I got moments. Like, I cannot believe, cannot believe if Wes, like Wes saw that and didn't immediately put a wig on her head. They gave Nevin Patrick wigs. We might as well throw one on her too because it is very tragic and it was very bad for her. Okay. It was awful. I don't understand this, these bangs. They're not Betty Page bangs. They're just short like Betty Page bangs, but Betty Page bangs go straight across. Oh my God. My window's open and I feel like I saw someone looking at me. I'm scared. Mm, I'm spooked. I don't want to get up though. So whatever. Anyway, if you have not seen these bangs, look up Gail Bangs Scream 3 or just Courtney Cox Bangs or just Scream Bangs. They'll show up and it's frightening. Oh, I think, I don't know what I'm seeing outside, but I see something moving and I'm a little scared. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. So Officer Kincaid, played by Patrick Dempsey, attends one of Gail's lectures. (laughs) and approaches her with information regarding Conweary's death. And apparently Ghostface is getting a little bit more creative and leaving pictures of, I keep seeing movements. I'm scared, guys. You know what? I'm going to pretend it's not there. I'm going to close the blinds. I'll be right back. Detective Mark Kincaid, LAPD. Hello. It's quite an impressive resume. Thank you. I assume you're not here for an autograph? I'm here because Conweary's been murdered. Someone killed Cotton? And his girlfriend. Someone who left something he wanted us to see. I'll show you this because you're the Woodsboro Authority and because you knew him. I promise you, if you share this with the world, it's you I'll be arresting. I swear at my Pulitzer Prize, which I plan to win one day, detective. This was left in Cotton. I'm not going to lie. That was horrifying. I just closed the, blind, the blinds and I was scared a face was going to pop up like in Scream 1 when Drew Barrymore is at the door. Oh my God. Or the window. Whew. I don't know where I was, but Patrick Dempsey attended. He's like, Oh, yeah, the pictures. So she's Ghostface is leaving pictures of young Marine Prescott at the scenes. And I can't remember, but I feel like um, they like didn't know who they were until they showed um, Gail. And she was like, that's Marine Prescott. So just like that, Gail is pulled back into another series of murders where she does best. <laughs> so this leads Gail to travel to Hollywood where the rest of um, the film will unfortunately take place. Uh, I personally do not care for the setting at all. It creates a tone that doesn't quite feel like Scream to me, but I got I do. I just need. To, I do love Scream Three. I do, but there are things I don't like. A lot of things I don't like, but I still love it. And I will be a little bit more negative on this one, but I still love rewatching it. And it's still, I think it's a completely solid on a technical level, which is something not all slasher horror franchises can say. Really, not really many franchises can say. So I don't think Scream has a bad movie at all. Three is just a little disappointing as it 
could have been amazing from what I now know, which I learned doing this episode. And yeah, that fucking studio, blame Harvey Weinstein. And we'll get to that in this one. We will get to Harvey Weinstein. So Gail makes it to the set of Stab 3, which if you have done the math, you realize that there ain't enough murders who have been a Stab 3 adaption. That is because the studio just wants to milk this story for as much money as they can by still using Sydney's character and make their own story. One that will consistently change due to last second rewrites, something that upsets the cast of Stab 3, which is a prime example of Scream meta fashion that the cast of Scream 3 was also going through at the time and of like re- rewrites and they were getting pissed, like I said. Has there been another goddamn rewrite? How the fuck are we supposed to learn our lines when there's a new script every 15 minutes? And on the stab or on the set of Stab 3, director Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley, and producer John Milton, played by Lance Her- Henriksen, are arguing with executives on the levels of violence that they can show in their film, another little meta aspect, and whatever. Meanwhile, we meet the rest of the mostly unremarkable cast. We meet Angelina Tyler, a newcomer to Hollywood who won the role of Sydney, played by Emily Mortimer. And I like Emily Mortimer, um, but it is such a missed opportunity to not bring back Tori Spelling to play a fake version of herself playing Sydney. And I'm not sure if she was even asked, but I would have offered her anything she wanted to get her on board. But I will say that this cheap recasting it it does fit with horror sequels so i can't complain too much it works but it's like it's accurate and everything but i would have liked to have seen tori spelling in this i think she's funny enough that it would have worked out perfectly fine i don't know but next we meet jenny mccarthy playing sarah darling who is playing a character named candy in stab three I actually think Jenny is a great addition to the Scream series. Um, Wes said that the cast and crew absolutely adored her and she was very professional and wonderful to work with. He also did make a slightly inappropriate comment that the crew liked to look at her too, which uh, I understand this is the year 2000 and that being hot and funny was like Jenny's brand. Like it's probably still her brand. I don't really know what she's up to anymore, but. That was her brand, but it is a little inappropriate. <laughs> um, but I mean, that is all he said. That That's all he said. So he wasn't like nasty or anything, but yeah, it was a little, it did maybe go, mm, I don't know why you said that, but whatever. Um, I do think Jenny is a little bit underused here because I think she's really good, but yeah, we get what we get of her and I enjoy her in this. But here's when we also meet Tyson played by Dion Richard Richmond and Tom Prince, played by Matt Kessler or Kessler, um, who's playing Dewey in Stab Three. And I don't have anything to say about them, like at all. They aren't memorable, and I've seen this movie a hundred times, and I barely remember them. But we do find out that Dewey is working on this movie, which. <laughs> we'll get into but like okay so he's an advisor on the film which i just never liked i never liked it at all i always thought it was so anti-dewey to have him like work on this movie that's going to exploit sydney and his dead sister tatum 
Um, which also I have to say, I wish we had scenes of Dewey acknowledging Tatum more. We get one in Scream 2 and then we sort of get one in Scream 3, but it's a fake out. It's actually, it's actually Ghostface pretending to be him, whatever. It took me several rewatches to catch on that he is only working on this movie because he knew someone involved with it was just trying to get to Sydney when someone was trying to like steal her file at woods in the woodsboro pd or whatever um which is a little convoluted but i will accept it because dewey would do anything for sydney and gail but in this scene we learn that dewey and gail have gotten together after scream 2 but their relationship failed when gail no longer wanted to live in the small town of they didn't she want to live the woodsboro small town life that dewey did um, also in this scene, we get the true star of Scream 3, Jennifer Jolie, who is playing Gail Weathers in Stab 3, who is played by the legendary Parker Posey, who is the best casting decision since Nev Campbell, David Arquette, and Courtney Cox. She is such a standout, and I can't even begin to explain and describe how good her performance is. And her back and forth with Courtney Cox is a literal comedic genius and Parker's ad-libs are some of the best things to ever be captured on film. And I don't just mean in Scream 3. I mean in any movie ever that she's in. Like it's in, she's so fucking good. She is so hilarious and I love her so much. I need to start watching more of her movies because she is incredible. Gail Weathers. Oh my God. Uh, listen, I, I, I know we've never met, and I, I don't mind you never returning my calls, but I have to tell you, after two films, I feel like I am in your mind. Mm, well, that would explain my constant headaches. You know, I'm sorry things didn't work out on 60 Minutes 2, but total entertainment, that's a pretty good fallback. No, thank you. I'm sorry that things didn't work out with Brad Pitt, but being single, that's a pretty good fallback. Gives me more time for my work. After all, Gail Weathers, you're such a complex character. Oh, and to be played by an actress with such depth and range. Uh, Jennifer, Nick said you wanted to. Anyway, yeah. the scene cuts back to Sydney, who's at home, and her father is visiting her, which we learn only he and Dewey know where she lives. I think it's a nice scene, and I think it's nice to see Neil again, but like, it's kind of a throwaway. Um, it is not, it, we do get, um, what's the word i'm blanking i've been doing this for now two and a half hours my brain is fried and i've been finishing writing this we get um character development sorry on sydney in this part so it's good and later that night sydney starts having hallucinations of her mother um that i know some scream fans don't care for but i think i think they're fine they're pretty creepy they make it kind of seem like it's supernatural which is different and which they say oh the trilogy's gonna get supernatural or whatever whatever i i think it's fine i think it's it's a fine scene i don't think it's supernatural obviously it's just sydney's ptsd and that works for me i like that scream handles topics like this even though i think they're done a little lightly to be honest i think um they could be a little bit more heavy-handed on that aspect of it um we don't really get that in horror until 2018's Halloween, and which is all about. <laughs> if you ask, if you ask Jamie Lee Curtis, she'll say trauma because that's how she pronounces trauma. It's about trauma. Um, but yeah, Scream touches on it. I like it. 
It is creepy. I think the scare works. Whatever. You know, whatever. It's just whatever. That's kind of what this movie is. It's just kind of whatever. It's just go for the ride. So back at Hollywood, Sarah arrives at Roman's office to go over lines and he is unable to be there. So they have a phone conference while she's in his office. And um, I actually love this scene. <laughs> I do. I think it's really funny when she breaks the statue's head off and tapes it back on. And I kind of just like Jenny's performance here. But Roman starts getting creepy and he turns into Ghostface over the phone. Remember that ridiculous voice changer? Yeah. Anyway, so she's attacked. And I like the sequence of her hiding in the rack of Ghostface costumes on set and the real Ghostface pops out. It's a fun moment. But yeah, she dies. She gets like thrown through a door, a glass door, and she's stabbed. My throat is like dead after talking nonstop for this long. Um, But anyway, the cast finds out that Sarah is dead and they are worried the killings are happening in order of the script. And they're unsure because there's so many rewrites that they don't know who's next. And in one of the scripts, Gail is killed next. And we get that wonderful moment of Jennifer... (laughs) Parker Posey's character jumping into her bodyguard's arms, who's played by Patrick Warburton. And Wes said that crew that weren't even like needed on set would just come in and watch Parker's scenes because she's just so funny and would come up with all these crazy things to do. And you can tell she's the best part of the movie, hands down. One of the best characters in the whole series. Uh, but also we get a scene of Sydney. She gets a call from the killer while she's at working the crisis hotline and he's found out where she lives so it's like sydney what are you doing answering the phone stop answering the phone i think if you just stopped answering the phone ghostface will just go away (sighs) so now jennifer dewey angelina and tom are at jennifer's house because production has been shut down and gail is snooping around when jennifer's bodyguard finds her and we learned earlier that day that dewey and jennifer have like they have like a fling or something. I think it's more so one-sided on Jennifer's part, but yeah, it gets this nice rivalry between Jennifer and Gail, which just gives them great lines to say to each other. So they're so good here. Courtney and Parker are the MVPs of Scream 3. And um, anyway, Jennifer shows Dewey one of her headshots at some point. I don't remember when in the scene, but she shows him. And then Dewey shows Gail that, a picture of Maureen was left at Sarah's murder. And Dewey notices that one of the pictures shares the same background of Jennifer's headshot, which means young Maureen was in Hollywood at this, at some point, which leads to some controversial retcons of the series. Although I don't even think they're retcons to be honest. Like they kind of make sense, but fans are like, I don't like this retcon, but yeah. So somehow Maureen is attached to Hollywood and Sydney and Neil had no idea, I guess. Okay. So then we get a scene of Jennifer's bodyguard getting killed by Ghostface, where Ghostface uses that stupid voice changer to make himself sound like Dewey. And I don't really care to talk about this scene. He gets killed. It's boring. Whatever. You know, like he gets a call. They think it's Dewey. It's not Dewey, it's Ghostface, and he's killed. This whatever. So when he <laughs> makes it to the house, they see um the bodyguard i remember his name he dies and they all start freaking out so then they start getting faxes from the ghost from ghostface who's writing a script of what is happening right then in the moment and he keeps sending more lines through the fax machine and they can't decide whether they want to be in the house or not 
And um, I actually like this scene. I know a lot of people don't like it. I don't mind it at all. I think it is really funny. I think it's really well done. And um, there is a lot of coincidences. Like I get why people don't like it. You need a lot of coincidences to happen for it to work out the way it does. And it does. So whatever. I like it. They get into, um, what's his name? Tom or whatever. He goes into the house to get the next page. Yeah. Remember Tom? Neither do I because he's pointless. <laughs> he's underwritten and the performance is pretty lame. I mean, it's fine. It's, I don't want to be anything against him. It's just like, it's not memorable. So the, he gets in there, he is reading the page and he can't see it. So he lights up like a, his lighter um, to read it. And it says the killer will give mercy to whoever smells the gas. And this causes the house to explode, causing Dewey, Gail, and Jennifer and Angelina to get blown off the side of a cliffside because, of course, Jennifer lives on a house on a cliffside. She lives in Hollywood, you know, classic influencer house at this point. Um, And yeah, I like this. I really like the explosion. It was done with a miniature. I think the explosion looks fine. Like it look, I mean, it looks good. I don't really understand the hate. Like I get the coincidences, but like it's a scream movie. It's a new way to kill someone. Like it's a fun kill. I like it. Sue me. Sue me, scream fans. Sue me. So they fall down the cliff and they make it down. And Dewey hears one side of somewhere, whatever, of Jennifer yelling for help. And the other side, Gail's yelling for Dewey. So he doesn't know who to go to. And then he ultimately chooses Gail because obviously he loves Gail. And Ghostface pops up behind Gail and Dewey shoots him multiple times. And Ghostface disappears in his classic Ghostface fashion and leaves another picture of Maureen that says, I killed her, written on it. Um, then... My favorite moment happens when Jennifer is pissed that Dewey abandoned her and Gail just decks her in a very Sydney punching Gail way. Like they kind of just, um, they kind of just redid that scene and Parker Posey ad-libbed the, my lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. And it's one of the best deliveries. It's a delivery that only Parker Posey could deliver. And it's so, it's so good. Um, so Dewey and Gail meet with Kincaid to discuss what they found, and Kincaid demands to know where Sydney is, which, surprise, she's already there. She's flown down. She flew down once Ghostface called her to the house, and honestly, I don't remember if she even flew. I don't know where she was. She was like Northern California, I think. There is this really nice moment between Sydney and Gail that... Um, I think it's kind of underrated. I never hear people talk about it, but it's like that awkward hug and like their introduction. I, I don't know. I really love that scene for some reason. They are just like these two characters that have come a very long way and they shouldn't like each other with their past. But um, because of their past, another part of their past, they got to love each other anyway at this point and they're in this together. So yeah, I really liked, I just like their awkward, like, are we friends now kind of hug? And then we get the scene I don't care for, which is Sydney, Dewey, and Gail head to the set of step three, where they run into, <laughs> they run into Randy's sister, Martha, played by Heather Matarazzo, I think is how you say her name. 
whom I believe, I believe she's coming back for Scream 5 since she was on set. And I think her two children are characters. But anyway, somehow Martha gets on the set, this closed set, and somehow finds Sydney and Dewey. She has a tape that Randy left, which originally it was in conversations to, um, they were going to, they were wondering if they wanted to bring Randy back from the dead because fans were so mad that they killed him off, but they found that it'd be like completely unbelievable. So thankfully they just had Randy make a video during Scream 2, like in the middle of the murders to explain the rules of a trilogy in case he didn't survive Windsor murders, which he didn't obviously. So basically they use Randy to justify retcons made where he's like, true trilogies are about finding something about the past that no one knew before, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I don't like it. Don't like it. Don't care to see Randy again. Sorry, Randy. Don't care who Martha is. Don't know who you are. It's just very bizarre. Very bizarre. Very bizarre. So yeah, that's about it. Martha leaves and then Gail and Jennifer team up to go to the studio um, studio archives where they meet Carrie Fisher, who's playing a woman who looks like Carrie Fisher, who works in the archives after losing the part of Alea to Carrie Fisher because she decided to not sleep with George Lucas. Did you get all that? So let me do that again. They meet Carrie Fisher, who is playing a woman who looks like Carrie Fisher, who lost the part of Alea to Carrie Fisher because she decided to not sleep with George Lucas which this is the second or third comment in the movie so far, because there's more, um, about actresses being forced to sleep with their directors and producers. And remember that, remember that, because that will come back in a big way, a big meta way later on. But anyway, we get some funny dialogue here, mainly because Carrie wrote her own dialogue and she's a fantastic writer. And Gail and Jennifer learn that Maureen tried to break into Hollywood when she was younger and starred in some B-movie, b movie horror movie oh my god b movie horror films for john milton the producer of scream 3 we met earlier on and she went under a stage name so nobody not even neil or sydney knew about this for some reason <clears throat> whatever I'll just go with it and i just need to say my throat is kind of killing me after talking so long i keep having to drink water <sighs> so Sydney is on set and there is a scene that mirrors the first one where she's in the bathroom and she finds Angelina who is made to look like a suspect. Mm, whatever. So then Sydney wanders onto the set of screen of Stab 3 and for some reason it is set up to look exactly like the scenes that took place in or that would have taken place in Stab 1. Like we see the garage with Tatum's like the like we see that crime scene. We see all that shit. I don't know why it's like that. Don't understand why stab three would be having scenes from stab one makes no sense but she's having flashbacks or whatever after seeing these and i really i just don't get it i don't get it i don't get it i don't get it but sydney is attacked by ghostface during this and i think even though i think the sets are stupid to look like um stab one or scream one it is really clever they use really clever use of the sets i love the little chase scene and I like the, where she like runs through the door, but it's not a door and there's no floor because she's on the second floor and it's a fake door, you know, that scene. I think that's all great. But she escapes, obviously, and she's found by Dewey and the new ghost face is gone. And it seems like some kind of think she's just having some sort of a psychotic break. But anyway, 
this is kind of all over the place. I'm gonna be honest, guys, it's 545 in the morning right now. <laughs> um, Dewey, Gail, and Jennifer go to Milton's office to question him about Marine, and they see Roman is there and he's pissed and he's mad that his movies shut down. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares, Roman? We also learn that it is his birthday, and for some reason, the cast, but none of the crew are throwing a party for him at Milton's mansion. Okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. Also, Milton confesses to have worked with Maureen and then explains that she got involved in Hollywood sex parties that she wanted, no matter what she said after. So basically, Maureen was raped repeatedly by Hollywood executives, including Milton. And this is the big conversation we need to have about Scream 3. I brought it up before, um, but the Scream franchise is produced by the Weinsteins. So Harvey Weinstein is Brother Bob, but the big one is Harvey Weinstein. And the question I have was, was Wes commenting on Harvey in this movie? And like, he makes a lot of comments here about women in their relationship with predatory men in Hollywood. And for this to be produced by none other than Harvey Weinstein, it's insane. Like he already would have had a reputation because Rose McGowan, who played Tatum in Scream 1, was infamously raped and assaulted by Harvey in 1997, which we would learn in 2000, we would learn, I think, in 2017 when she fully comes forward. Um, but they would have known this in Hollywood, or at least maybe not her, but others. So was Wes trying to say something here without the threat of losing his reputation or being blacklisted for speaking out? I'm not sure. Like, I'm not even sure if he's fully aware of Harvey's behavior at all. I'm not, I don't know what Wes knew. I don't know what anyone knew. But it's insane to me and fascinating that Harvey would have anything to do with this movie. Like, with this plot, like if he would have anything to do with this movie with this plot line at all, like it's crazy. It just shows how sick he is. Like according to Wikipedia, 107 women came forward about being either sexually harassed or straight up sexually assaulted by Harvey. Women like Rose McGowan, Angelina Jolie, Mira Sorvino, Uma Thurman, Minka Kelly, Ashley Judd, Gwyneth Paltrow, Lupita Nyong'o, Kate Blanchett, Helena Bonham Carter, Kate, Bl- Kate Beckinsale, Rosanna Arquette, Selma Hayek. The list goes on and on and on, and I can't imagine how many women chose not to come forward. And I just think there's a good chance that this film was commenting on Harvey specifically, but obviously it was commenting on the many men in Hollywood that Wes and whoever was writing was a aware of that all Hollywood was aware of. And I think this movie has some real something really interesting to say about Maureen and the aftermath of her assaults. And that is like her trauma led to her hypersexual behavior that everyone around her villainized her for. But really it was just like a trauma response. And through all of her consensual sex with Cotton Weary and Hank Loomis and whoever else in town, whoever else the town knew about, I don't know who else, she had full control over it and her body. And that was probably something that she was always needing to seek out and to cope with what happened to her. And it's 
like fascinating and a necessary um, conversation to have. And I think that Wes handled that very well. They don't spoon feed it to the audience, but it is sprinkled in there to get the audience thinking. And, you know, like I, it's impossible for me to know Wes's full intentions with this film, but it's definitely before it's time when sexual assault in Hollywood was not discussed. In fact, it wouldn't be widely discussed for a whole 17 years until the Me Too movement. So yeah, I'm just going to leave that on that. I don't know what else I can say about that. Um, I don't have any answers. It's just something to think about that this movie is talking about and it's produced by Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Back to the story. Dewey, Gail, and Jennifer leave Milton's office and they get a call from Sydney that says she's headed to Roman's birthday party at Milton's mansion for some reason. And when they get there, they find Roman, Angelina, and Tyson. Remember Tyson? Yeah, me neither. Um, Anyway, they all decide to search through Milton's place because it supposedly has secret passageways and Gail and Dewey redial the number that Sydney called from and they hear the phone ring. And they find the phone with a Ghostface costume and a voice changer. And they find that Ghostface has everyone's voices somehow, which doesn't make any sense. And I don't care to talk about it anymore because it's dumb as shit. <sighs> Dewey, he's got our voices. <laughs> Ugh. So anyway, for, first of all, I just said I don't want to talk about it, but I need to talk about it. How did he get their voices? <laughs> How? How? Where did he get those? It's not like... I can't even think about it. It's too stupid. So Gail and Dewey start searching the mansion, and Gail stumbles across a room full of props, and in a coffin finds a supposedly dead Roman. Supposedly dead Roman. Gail then suspiciously... I'm falling over my words. Suspiciously comes across Jennifer in the same basement and they run out of there and they stumble across Angelina who tries to run away, but is stabbed by Ghostface. And yeah, um, I don't really care about her either. (laughs) I don't care. It's just, it doesn't matter to me. Sorry, Angelina. But yeah, Dewey, Gale, Jennifer, and Tyson are attacked next when Tyson is killed, which again, whatever, don't care. The carpet was pulled. He did a backflip or front flip or whatever, landed on his head, and then Ghostface like threw him off the balcony. Okay. Um, don't even know who that man was. I don't even know what character he was playing in Stab. He just was in like two scenes. Don't care. Uh, The real sad moment is that Jennifer is the next target and Jennifer finds a secret passageway when Ghostface attacks and at the end of the passageway is a dead end that has a two-way mirror that shows a bedroom, which in the context of Milton and his colleagues raping young women in Hollywood, this little mirror room is disgusting. It's gross. But in the bedroom, Dewey and Gail are in there and they can't hear Jennifer screaming because it's soundproof, but they do see that the mirrors are moving because she's banging on them, screaming for help. And Dewey starts shooting the mirrors out, and Jennifer's dead body falls out of one of them after being killed by Ghostface. R.I.P. Jennifer. It's so sad. It is so sad because she was like the best character that this series has had in quite some time. But anyway, let's get Scream 3 done with, okay? It is 5 a.m. 
my throat hurts. I've been talking forever. So eventually Ghostface is able to grab Gail, but they stumble back down the stairs and Dewey goes to save her. Ghostface throws a knife at him, but thankfully the handle hits his head instead of the blade, but it causes him to stumble down the stairs and Ghostface is able to basically kidnap Dewey and Gail and hold them hostage and call Sydney, telling her that she needs to come and save them. We then see Sydney in Kincaid's office eyeing a gun and a bulletproof vest. So obviously Sydney's going to save her little family and makes her way to the mansion. Um, when she gets there, Ghostface is like makes her get rid of her gun and throw it in the pool. By the way, I forgot to mention, but Sydney's actually wearing Derek's letters from um, Scream 2, which I think is a really nice touch. It's really cute. It It's really sad because she could have saved him and, you know, she's lost so many people. So it is a very nice touch to have. But anyway, Sydney tries to untie Dewey and Gale, but is attacked by Ghostface. But she already had the second gun that she took from Kincaid's desk and she shoots him in the chest, um, Ghostface in the chest. And of course, he disappears. And then Kincaid shows up, Ghostface again attacks, but Kincaid throws Sydney out of the way and he is stabbed instead. Sydney runs away and finds a secret passageway that leads to a room playing secret videos of Maureen. So Ghostface unmasks himself, and it's revealed to be Roman. Roman Bridger, director. And brother. A man who we barely saw in the movie. And someone Sydney has never met or seen. So, (laughs) you know she's like, "Um, who the fuck are you? But the bigger what the fuck is that, well, for starters, Gail checked his pulse when she found his body and was like, he's dead. I guess there's a cut scene where he explains how he did that, but like, okay. Um, you didn't show it, so it didn't happen. And so how how did that happen? Is Gail just dumb? Maybe so. Maybe so. But the bigger what the fuck is that he reveals to her that she is or that she is his half sister. So sibling check. <laughs> oh, I don't like this. I don't like it. And I always thought, oh, are they kind of making fun of like Halloween too? But no, I don't think they were. I think this was just they thought was clever. But was it clever? Because we never get to see Roman outside of like three scenes. And he is kind of like kind of in the background. Like you're like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot he was here. He's like the mopey director. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I don't know. It kind of just gets me that Sydney walks into this and this guy unmasks and she's like expecting to know who it is. And she's like, it's like, okay, who the fuck are you? Even though she doesn't even act like that. She's kind of like, oh my God, in the movie. But like, I'd be like, who are you? I don't know who you are. Why are you doing this? I don't know who you are. And then for him to be like, I'm your brother. And she just kind of goes with it. Oh my God. What if like, he's just lying? (laughs) That'd be a funny twist. I'd be like, I don't know who you are. So I think you're full of shit. But no, she doesn't. And, but he tells her that he was born during Marine's days in Hollywood, which is most likely due to her assaults, if you read between the lines. And he tried to reach out to her after she left him and started her life in Woodsboro with her husband and daughter, Sydney. And she turned him away and was like, listen, like, you're not my son. Sydney's my daughter. I have a husband. I have a life. Raina Reynolds, which was her stage name, doesn't exist. So the woman you're looking for is not me. And he's like, wow. 
So he starts following her around and recording her, which is the videos that we're watching right now on the screen. And they're videos of like Neil with other men that aren't Neil, like Cotton and Hank, um, Billy's father. And we end up, he ends up showing these videos to Hank's son, Billy, thus prompting Billy and Stu to start their murder spree. Roman is such a little shit. He's like, I'm a director. I direct. I directed them to do it. I directed them. And it's like, okay, they were already clearly crazy. They were already clearly crazy that I don't think you influenced them that much. I think they would have done something anyway. So don't get ahead of yourself. But congrats. Also, I can't remember. I feel like it's implied that Milton knew who he was. So he gave him this job or something like he was giving him work. I don't know. Was that said? Or am I making that up? Because honestly, that kind of makes sense to me. But who cares? Roman shows Sydney that he had Milton tied up and plans to somehow frame him for the murders. And like, again, like Sydney doesn't know who this man is. She's like, hasn't been in the movie. She was at home and then she was in the police station. Now she's here. And this old man gets brought out and she's like, okay, these people mean nothing to me. I don't care. Like, that's what I would have done. I'm like, I don't care. Do it see what he does maybe be like why don't you care oh my god and then he wouldn't do it you know maybe do some reverse psychology i don't know but like i would be like i don't know who this man is i don't know who you are so like why am i here this has nothing to do with me but anyway he just like decides to slit milton's throat and again whatever like we barely knew him and he's a piece of shit so why do we care sydney and roman start fighting and it is a very nice fight this is another very well choreographed fight um and act very well acted by nev and scott it's i think the best fight in the series it's the best choreographed fight in the series it's so well acted it's brutal um i think scream 3 is one of nev's best performances i think it's her best performance in the entire series probably her best performance um that she's ever done which i think is saying something because she is a fantastic actress a fantastic underrated actress but i love their little exchange where the fuck you fuck you exchange it's so good they're both so good scott is really good nev's really good and for the family and for the stardom and god damn it everything you have there should have been mine Doug, why don't you stop your whining and get on with it i've heard this shit before stop you know why you kill people roman do you don't want to hear it because you choose to there is no one else to blame damn, fucking damn it why don't you take some fucking responsibility fuck you fuck you <laughs> But anyway, Kincaid somehow enters and is attacked again, and Roman takes his gun and shoots Sydney multiple times in the chest and stomach. And then Dewey and Gail attempt to get in the room, and when they like are able to get the light shut off, and then Roman looks, he's like, oh my, the lights. He looks back, and Sydney pulls a ghost face, and she disappears. And I'm like, oh, yes. Thank you. This is the shit we signed up for, Miss Prescott. Now let's kill this bastard. So she pops up and stabs him multiple times. And um, and then she like shows him her bulletproof vest. And she's like, LOL, you thought you should have shot me in the head. She stabs him. He drops. Dewey and Gail enter. And then classic ghost face fashion. He ends up popping up again a few seconds later and Dewey starts shooting him repeatedly but he keeps shooting in the chest because for some reason Dewey's dumb sorry Dewey but like what are you doing shoot in the head so Sydney's like yelling head head shoot him in the head so he finally does 
And that leads our leaderboard for three ghost faces killed by Sydney. One that she shares one with Gail, one with Cotton, one with Dewey. That is our ghost face hunting leaderboard, everyone. So later at Sydney's house, Dewey proposes to Gail. It's all sweet, blah, 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 blah. And then Sydney leaves her gate open, her door unlocked and opened. That, like, who leaves her door open? It's crazy. Anyway, it shows that she's not afraid anymore. You know, symbolism, all that jazz. She joins Dewey and Gail inside to watch a movie with Kincaid because he's there for some reason. I guess him and Sydney have a fling, which, okay, Miss Nev Campbell getting Patrick Dempsey. Good for her. But yeah, that is the end of the original Dream my god scream trilogy um we would not get another installment for another 11 years <laughs> you could tell us getting a little uninterested in this this one one because i'm tired two because my throat hurts three because scream three is just not my favorite um but I, again i also don't think it's a bad movie it's fun it's different from the other two but that's not necessarily like a bad thing it it's still good it has like a um scooby-doo quality to it that i actually quite like i like that it focuses on gail and dewey more and i find it sucky that when the topic of final girls comes up the conversation is always about sydney but gail has also been a final girl from the beginning and i would have liked if we had even more gail and dewey um but truthfully, I, like I said, Sydney gives her, be- or not Sydney, Nav gives her best performance here, which is always, again, is saying something because she's so good. But yeah, I don't have much else to say about Scream 3 that has not already been said for the past 20 years. It's fun, but a shame that the outside world caused it to change its script so many times. And um, again, the original idea would have been amazing and... I just think Wes and the cast and crew did the best with what they were given. So let's jump straight into Scream 4. This has been a very long ride on the Scream train, and I hope everyone is still with me on hour three. (laughs) I know I'm not really talking that much about the technical aspects, but I just kind of want to talk about the story because I love Scream so much, and I just want to talk about the things I love. And obviously I wasn't loving that much in Scream 3, so I was getting a little bored there, but I'm back. I'm back. We're not taking a break. I'm back. Or at least I'm not taking a break, even if you can't tell if I am or not because of editing. But I'm sitting here the entire time. So let's get into Scream 4. What? Welcome home, Sydney. Preview of coming events. Why don't you come for me? You got the balls for that? Oh, poor sad you. You think you're still the star? This isn't a fucking movie! It, will- it was released on April 14th in 2011 with Kevin Williamson returning to write the script and Wes Craven returning to directing. It also had Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette returning to the screen. And um, I actually think much of the same crew was used for pretty much all of the Scream 4 movies. Obviously not everyone and things changed, but um, I'm pretty sure a lot of them came back. So it does seem like everyone enjoys making these movies because they keep coming back. Um, one change, however, that I do need to talk about is that they changed the filming 
from California to Ann Arbor and Detroit, Michigan, which is where I'm from. So it was very exciting. Um, I have been to the house where they filmed at Emma Roberts's, where they used as Emma Roberts's house, which was cool. You know, Ann Arbor does not look like Northern California, but (laughs) it worked out just fine. And apparently the cast and crew really enjoyed Michigan. And for a while, a lot of the filming was taking, a lot of filming was taking place in Detroit. Like I know some of the Transformers movies, I think like two and, or I'm sorry, three and four were filmed in Detroit, at least part of it. Batman vs. Superman was also filmed in Detroit, but like, I don't know, change in the taxes and productions ended up leaving, which sucks as a film student back then um, in Metro Detroit, because now the work has all left Detroit. I don't think there's that many, there's not much filming taking place anymore. But yeah, there was some drama behind the scenes because between the Weinsteins and another producer who I guess they seem to be trying to kick out of the production. I don't know. They ended up getting sued. I did not understand the details it wasn't that interesting so let's just move on from that um apparently like they wanted to continue working on scream 4 producing it and they the wine scenes were like uh we don't want you to do this so bye i don't know seemed a little shady to me but wes was interested in telling the story of sydney again and kevin wanted to return to write it and they did not want the movie to be like saw where i'm pretty sure i said this earlier but how that focuses on the next kill. They were interested in making the audience really care about the characters. So they wanted to bring back Nev Campbell and really they just want to bring the cast back and have these characters see where they're at, have the audience care about them. So yeah, it was it is different than other slasher series because most slasher series, you kind of root for the killer, but for Scream, you really don't. You're rooting for the main, the main three. Um, so anyway, the script went through many versions um in some versions dewey and gail had a baby which i don't like that at all i'm so glad that was cut um they cut it because it like they're like how are we getting this baby around like why would gail be bringing a baby to crime scenes and like also i'm sorry like this isn't what they said but i just don't see gail as a mother at all so i'm so glad they didn't do that uh, but another, there was an opening with Sydney getting attacked and left for dead with a two-year time jump after. And then there was another that um, was made to be left on a cliffhanger, which we'll get into. The ending was very similar to what it is, but they left it on a cliffhanger. But yeah, they ended up writing the script. Kevin wrote the script. And to smooth out the bumps, Aaron Kruger from Scream 3 was brought on to do some rewrites. And then some dude named Paul Harris Boardman came on for some uncredited rewrites as well. And Wes explained that when you make a big movie like Scream, it's not always 100% your film, which was the case with Scream 4. You Really, it was the whole thing with Scream 3. He couldn't make what he wanted to make because you have to make the studio happy with your with your movie. So he did say at the end of that, or he did explain that the script concept characters and themes were all Kevin's despite the rewrite. So he says, this is Kevin's script. It was, it just had some tweaks made to it, but it is Kevin's script. And Kevin is the only one who's credited with writing. The other ones were just like script doctors or whatever. Um, But in late 2009, Nev, Courtney, and David were all confirmed to be returning. And by May, 2010, Rory Culkin and Hayden Panettiere were announced to have joined the cast with Ashley Green from Twilight apparently being offered the role of Jill, but no hate to Ashley. But thankfully, <laughs> she did not take this role for whatever reason, and Emma Roberts was cast instead, because as you'll find out, I love Emma Roberts in this movie. 
I'm sure Ashley couldn't do it because of um, Twilight or something. But I also heard that Lucy Hale was cast as Jill at one point, but had to drop out because of Pretty Little Liars. So she had to switch roles. And again, well, not again, but don't quote me on that. Like, don't quote me on that at all. Because I read that on Reddit and I really did not feel like fact checking it. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true. So yeah, don't quote me on that. But anyway, Lake Bell was also cast originally as Deputy Hicks, but had to drop out before filming and was replaced by Marley Shelton, as well as Lauren Graham being cast as Sydney's Aunt Kate, but for whatever reason dropped out during filming and was replaced by Mary McDonald. And as for the rest of the cast, um, Roger L. Jackson returned as the voice with Anthony Anderson, Adam Brody, Allison Brie, Mariel Jaff, I think is how you pronounce her name. I'm sorry to Marielle if that is not, but my bad. Um, Nico Tortorella. I don't know how to say his last name. I know who he is. Whatever. Eric Knudsen. Um, they all joined the cast. And then for as for smaller cameo roles, Anna Paquin, Kristen Bell, Lucy Hale, Shanae Grimes, Britt Robinson, and um, Amy Teagarden took on those cameo roles for the opening scene. But unfortunately, Scream 4 or underperformed at the box office and only made just under $100 million on a $40 million budget, which would lead to the canceling of the future plans of the series and was the birth of the MTV show. Yeah, it is such a shame that Scream 4 didn't do as well. I was not able to see it because I was underage and I couldn't get into the theater. I couldn't drive there. I was not a kid who snuck into movies at all. That made me anxious. So I was not able to see it. My parents would not take me to it because they hate horror movies. So I had to download it. <laughs> but yeah, the film was generally received well though, like most like the screen movies typically are. So let's just jump right into the plot. Let's we're in the final lap, people. We're in the final lap. This movie opens with a double fake out. Trudy and Sherry, played by Shanae Grimes and Lucy Hale, are hanging out when they get a call from Ghostface. The conversation in this scene is very much catching the audience up to the new world that is around them with social media and smartphones, although they're very new smartphones. <laughs> I'll just catch the chase and say that they both killed and there's a lot of blood. Scream 4 is very, very bloody, much bloodier than any other installment, which I personally think was a creative choice on behalf of the movie commenting on remakes and the rules of remakes and horror remakes are typically much bloodier. And I also think the very distinctive look that is widely hated by bands and really just people in general I think that is done because of remakes. Like it has that awful filter over it that looks almost like there was Vaseline on the lens. But I, I don't know. I think it's genius because it looks like a shitty remake and I love it. But everyone's always like talking about how terrible it is, but it works. It works with the conversation that is being had. It works because this movie works as a remake. This movie basically is a remake and a sequel like geniusly put together. And the cinematography was done by Peter Deming, I believe, who also did two and three. So it was clearly like not just a fluke that they got some rando to do it and he just made it look like shit. Like they obviously did it on purpose. I don't think they were just doing it because they thought it like was like, oh, this looks so much better. I think they were like, oh, this looks like a horror remake. And I don't think people think that. Maybe I just think that and that's not even what their intention was. Maybe their intention was that they just thought it looked better. I don't know. Don't ask me. Anyway, 
Um, Sherry and Trudy are killed, but instead of the title card saying Scream 4, it says Stab 6. Bum, bum, bum. Then it cuts to characters Chloe and Rachel watching Stab 6, watching what we just saw. I don't even know if their names are spoken in the movie, but they are played by Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell, much bigger stars at the time. Anna Paquin being an Oscar-winning actress, no less. Um, and she was on True Blood at the time, and Kristen Bell, everyone knows Kristen Bell. She was in Veronica Mars and a ton of movies. So... The original one, um, I don't know if Pretty Little Liars premiered yet. I'm pretty feel I feel like that premiered after Lucy Hale did this opening scene. And Shane Grimes was in like the 90210 remake or something. I'm not familiar with her work. Sorry to her. I don't even know if I'm saying her name right. Sorry to Miss Grimes. Both you and Elon Musk Grimes. So sorry to you both, but like I don't know. They're not very big stars. So for them to be in the opening was kind of odd. And then we get to the real opening, or so we're led to believe when we get Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin. And basically, I'm just going to refer to them as Anna and Kristen because who cares about their names? I don't. So Anna Paquin is talking shit about horror and how she hates Stab, saying like meta horror shit is lame, which is obviously Scream's whole shtick. So Kristen is sick of listening to Anna and just stabs her twice in the stomach and tells her to shut the fuck up and enjoy the movie. Now shut the fuck up and watch the movie. Then a new title card happens and it's stab seven. So then (laughs) we cut to Jenny Randall and Marnie Cooper watching stab seven and they are being played by Amy Teagarden and Britt Robertson. Robertson? Robin? Whatever. Um, And you may be thinking right now, How is Stab 6 shown in Stab 7? Well, that's the point. Um, It doesn't. And Jenny explains that um, the Stab series went to shit after they could no longer use Sydney's story. And one of the Stab movies has like time travel and they're just lame sequels at this point. Um, But she tells Marnie that Stab is awesome because they live in Woodsboro. And she kind of like tells, you don't know about the story? And Marnie's like, no, and I don't know how you wouldn't. Or how you, you know, how you wouldn't know the story, but whatever. So now we're in the real, we finally are in the real world. I promise. We're no more fake, no more fake outs. So, so Jenny goes upstairs and Marnie gets a phone call and you guessed it, it's from Ghostface. Although it isn't because it's just Jenny fucking with Marnie. So I lied. There was another fake out. <laughs> She's using a voice changer app since it is now 2011 and we have iPhone ones now. Um, and when Jenny comes back downstairs, she notices that Marnie's missing. The phone is on the ground. She picks it up and she's talking to the real ghost face this time. In the middle of their, their convo, Marnie's dead body is thrown through a window and Jenny is chased by a ghost face and Jenny is stabbed in the back and makes her way to the garage where she almost makes it out before ghost face closes the garage door on her and pulling her back into the garage and finishing her off. I like this opening for the most part. It's not as good or as shocking as one and two, but it's fun and I like the fake outs. I don't know if other fans like them or not. I like them. I particularly like the Kristen Bell basically telling the audience to shut the fuck up and enjoy the movie. I think that's funny. And I think the whole thing is unexpected and fun. And I also like that it shows the state of the stab movies. And yeah, I don't know. I don't have much else to say about that either. I just like it. I nothing more, nothing less. It's better than three. It's not as good as two. It's miles above three, in my opinion. Even though I think the only two that were like really 
worthy of taking on a scream opening was Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell, but like they had the shortest opening. They were like for 30 seconds, but that's okay. I feel like they were even marketing this movie. Like I remember Kristen Bell like went on a late night show to talk about it. And then she's in it for like 30 seconds. What a good fake out. It's kind of like the Drew Barrymore one. Hmm. Cool. <sighs> anyway, the next day, um, back in Woodsboro, which is clearly Ann Arbor, it's the 15th anniversary of the original killings. And Sydney Prescott has returned to town on a book tour with her publicist or manager or whatever, Rebecca, played by Allison Brie, who sort of takes on the Gale role of being the bitch of the story. But Sydney wrote this memoir called Out of Darkness, and Dewey and Gale live in Woodsboro, so Dewey no longer has his limp for some reason, and he's back on the police force as sheriff, and Gale, however, is clearly a bit unhappy with her career and trying to write another book. This time, she's going to try fiction. And she watches a TV interview of Sydney about her book, which clearly pisses Gail off because she has writer's block. Elsewhere, high school student Kirby Reed, played by Hayden Panettiere, a huge fan favorite, huge, huge, huge fan favorite, he picks up Jill Roberts, played by Emma Roberts, and her next door neighbor, Olivia, played by Mariel Jaffe. Jaff? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Mariel. Um, picking them up for school. So Jill is currently going through a breakup with her boyfriend, Trevor, played by Nico Torella. And while on the way, Jill gets a call from Ghostface asking the classic, What's your favorite scary movie? When they get to school, they're ambushed by two film nerds who are basically the new Randy, but less charming, um, who constantly live stream their lives. Charlie and Robbie, played by Rory Culkin and Eric... Nudson, I think is how you say his name. Oh, this is Hall Pass with Robbie Mercer. Here with the luscious Olivia, don't look at my tits, I have a mind, Morris. Here is my Woodsboro Massacre anniversary question. What is your favorite scary movie? Is that how you got some stupid douche question? Yeah, where did you hear that anyways? It's a line from Stab One, duh. Hey, Charlie. You're a genre nut, Kirby. What's your favorite scary movie? Bambi. And over the book signing, Sydney, Dewey, and Gail reunite, but... Dewey and his deputy, Judy Hicks, played by Marley Shelton, are there because the phone used in the killings of Jenny and Marnie was traced to the bookstore at the book signing that they're at. Um, and when Dewey calls the number, it's ringing from inside Sydney's rental car, which I don't think they would have heard, but you know, whatever, I'll go with it. And when they open the trunk, there's bloody pictures of Sydney and the phone and a knife. So just like that, Sydney cannot leave town and she's part of the murder investigation. So I think that was kind of clever. It was a clever way to not have, not let Sydney just be like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this again. She actually just has a reason to actually be there. I think it's smart. Also, I want to say that this movie is very smart with its use of cell phones because I think about, I have tried writing a lot of screenplays and I have even um, started some slasher ones. There's always the question on how do you get rid of cell phones? And you always see in movies like in, um, what's it called? Uh, Strangers Pray at Night, like their phones get destroyed or there's no service. It's always some lame way. And you can always tell that it's only put there to make sure that there's no, you can't ask the question, why don't they just call the police? That question is never brought up here and they always have their phones and 
I don't know how they got away with it, but it works. Like, I don't even question why they don't call the police. Like, the police are already on their way. It takes a while. Everything is fast-paced. Like, it, it works here. So I think they do really well with that. I can't remember where I was, but Gail tries to be a part of this investigation and Judy tries to stop her. She's like, um... Civilian interference with a police investigation poses many a problem in a court of law. Okay, listen to me, Judy. I don't mind that you're working with my husband or that you even bake him those little treats as you do. But if you're going to start acting like him, you got to put a mustache on because you sound ridiculous. Gail! Judy! Gail! <laughs> and then Dewey tells her to stay out of it and she decides to go out on her own because she's Gail Weathers. And she now has something to write about in her book because she's Gail Weathers. <laughs> and she walks out on her way telling Judy, Your lemon squares taste like ass. Which was an ad lib by Courtney and one of my favorite lines in the series. I love that line. <laughs> Later that night, Sydney and Dewey have a nice tender moment over at Jill's house where she is staying and Jill is the cousin from her mom's side making Kate, played by Mary McDonald, Maureen's sister. And a little bit later, Sydney walks in on Jill in her bedroom after her boyfriend Trevor sneaks, sneaks through the window. And this mirrors Billy climbing through Sydney's window in the original. And like I said, this movie, like, perfectly puts together a remake and a sequel without the fan service and i love it and i am a little nervous that the new scream scream 5 which isn't called scream 5 is going to be heavy on the fan service because i don't like fan service i really don't unless i'm a fan which i am a fan of this so maybe i will go crazy over it who knows but anyway sydney has a moment with judy after she leaves jill's room where judy's like <laughs> we went to high school she's so creepy she's got her big eyes she's standing in the dark and she's like we used to go to high school together and she mentions sydney being in theater which is i don't know it's like a nice callback i guess because i like always forgot that sydney was um a theater kid because she's quiet and i don't understand why she would be a theater kid it's so upsetting why is she a theater kid but anyway this is a classic scream red herring scene to make judy a suspect blah blah blah, blah. outside the roberts house is two cops being played by Anthony Anderson and Adam Brody, and their names are Perkins and Haas. And Perkins gets real creepy um, when he makes a comment about Olivia, who just got home next door and goes into her house. So Jill and Kirby are upstairs in Jill's room, and they call Olivia as she gets into her room. And Jill does this really bad impression of Ghostface as a prank. So while Jill is using Kirby's phone to talk to Olivia, Kirby answers Jill's phone that says Trevor is calling and it's Ghostface and the two go back and forth because, you know, Kirby's kind of like the, I almost said spunkier one. Like, I can't believe I said that, but like feisty, I hate that word, but she's kind of like the feistier one. She's a huge horror buff. She knows what she's talking about. So she goes back and forth. She thinks it's like all the, well, I don't know if she thinks it's a joke because I think she does. Well, she does think it's a joke, but like, she's kind of like, is this a joke? Because, you know, we just had two people murdered. So yeah, this is one of my favorite sequences in the movie, probably the series. Again, I'm saying it again. I'm going to keep saying it because it's great. Great things keep happening in this franchise. But Ghostface tells her that he's in the closet. Open the closet door. You do know there are cops all over this house. I think I'd have just enough time to slice someone open. I'll talk to her. What's going on over there, you guys? Sorry, I, I don't know. Kirby. Kirby. Come on, do it. There's no way you're in there. 
See for yourself. Kirby? Kirby, come on, talk to me. This isn't funny. Kirby! <gasps> Liar. I'm over this. And Kirby calls his bluff, and she opens the closet, and no one is there. And surprise, Ghostface was not in their closet. He was in Olivia's closet next door, and he attacks her. Um, and Kirby and Jill are like, they see her through the window, and they're screaming. It's like a really brutal attack. She is stabbed through her hand. She's thrown around like crazy. And I don't know how much of this was the actress, Muriel, again, I don't know her name, Jaff, Muriel Jaff, Jaff Bay. Um, but she kills it. No pun intended. I don't know how she didn't get more work. Like she really doesn't act much. Maybe that's her choice, but she's, a, she was great in the scene. So I don't know. I hope she gets work, even though it's been like, what, 10 years later. <laughs> um, anyway, Sydney hears their screams and runs over, um, to Olivia, but it's too late. She's dead. And it is one of the, I think it's the goriest death in the series. Actually, it is the goriest death in the series. Her intestines are all on Every, her intestines are out. The room is covered in blood, like ceiling to floor, blood everywhere. So Sydney is attacked and by Ghostface, obviously, who else would she be attacked by? And she fights him off as usual. And Jill runs over and in the commotion, she is slashed in the arm before Sydney like literally kicks Ghostface's ass. Well, actually not literally in the ass. She kicks him in the face. And when Haas and Perkins get in there, of course, Ghostface disappears. And Trevor shows up, of course, making him look guilty. And Jill tells Sydney to stay away from her because everywhere Sydney goes, she dies. She's like the angel of death or whatever they say. Later, Gail decides to team up with Robbie and Charlie to try and figure out the killings because she's like, this. they're like, they're like, um randy they know what's up so she she like hooks up with them for some reason like they're kind of fucking idiots and sydney fires rebecca while she's at the hospital because rebecca's basically trying to explore exploit this situation for more money she's kind of like gail in the beginning of the series and when rebecca leaves the hospital she's attacked by ghostface in the parking garage and he messes with her beforehand obviously he's calling her i don't know does he call her i can't even remember my brain is so fried right now it is now 5 30 in the morning um <laughs> but i'm having fun despite my throat hurting a lot but she's messed with like the car or whatever she's trying to get out of the parking garage and she is stabbed in the chest and she has this really great like slow falling down like slumping down off the floor look as she looks at ghost face like it's great not sure if it fully killed her but hold that thought outside the hospital Dewey holds this press conference. I don't know why he's doing it at the hospital. It's kind of weird, but he is. And um, as we know, Gail's already there um, because she just met up with Robbie and Charlie there. And she goes back on her old ways and she's questioning Dewey in front of everyone about the murders. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? Because like, you're trying to make me look bad or something. Like, what are you doing? You know, I can't answer these questions in front of people. And she don't care because she's on her own. He won't he won't help he won't do this with her so they're interrupted when ghostface throws rebecca from the top of the building i don't know if it's part of the parking garage or just the hospital and she lands on a news van so she wasn't dead before 
She's dead now. <laughs> and the next night, there is some sort of barn party, which is like the coolest party I have honestly ever seen. And I would kill to go. It is like, first, it's in a barn. And to make me want to go to a barn, it's got to be pretty fucking cool. Um, but it's a stabathon thrown by Charlie and Robbie, and they're going to watch all the stab movies. And Jill's unable to go because, um, obviously, her friend was just murdered. Um, her her cousin is Sydney Prescott, and also like, why would anyone go to this at this time, especially if you're in this friend group? But Kirby decides to go, and she's like, "It's what Olivia would have wanted," which I always hate in slasher movies when after their friends are dead, they just go on with their lives as if nothing just happened, but she's kind of doing that. And whatever. I'm glad for her. She's having fun. I love Kirby. <laughs> so Jill stays with Sydney and talks about how she can't imagine how awful Sydney must have it with all the fame and the lack of privacy, which is such a good moment when you find out more in the end. Um, but back at the party, Gail tries to pull the classic Gail and she crashes by putting on a ghost face mask and she's putting up these like ancient looking <laughs> webcams or whatever they are cameras. And, um, she's like hoping something happens. Like she wants to catch something on there. Um, so she goes back to her car to watch the footage and she sees someone dressed as Ghostface is covering up the cameras. And she's unsure if it's the real Ghostface or not because everyone is dressed as Ghostface at this party. There's even someone dressed as Dewey and Gale there. So she puts her mask back on, goes in there, and she sees while she's in the barn that someone else is recording the party with a different webcam that she did not set up. Um, Dewey gets at the party and he finds her car and he's looking at the footage, the live footage, and he sees that Ghostface is behind Gale. So he attacks Gale. Gale fights him off. Dewey obviously runs in after his wife. I mean, clearly. Ghostface stabs Gale in the shoulder and then Dewey's able to shoot at him and causes Ghostface to run away. So yeah, that obviously, or not obviously, but Gale thankfully survives because as you know, she is my one true queen of life. And back at Jill's house, Perkins and Haas notice Jill's window is open. And before they can even check it out, Haas is stabbed and killed. And Perkins is stabbed in the head and had this really nice death scene of walking out of his car with post head stab and dying and his last words being fuck Bruce Willis and Sydney is called by Ghostface and is threatened as always so Sydney runs upstairs to check on Jill and Jill is gone and on her laptop are texts from Kirby who just picked her up after the party just got ruined because someone decided to get stabbed <laughs> so Sydney rushes downstairs and finds Kate who just came home from grocery shopping last for some reason late at night during a murder spree that involves her family like her daughter just got cut her niece is Sydney Prescott and she's like, I'm going to go to the grocery store in the darkness. I don't know. And also it's just a weird performance by Mary McDonald. I don't know what she's doing here. She has that line where she's like, I have scars. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's weird. Like, I don't know. Maybe she's just traumatized that her sister was raped and murdered and her cut or her niece was terrorized but i've never heard of her so clearly she didn't care that much <laughs> like was she not in woodsboro when these murders were originally happening 20 or 15 years ago when sydney was in high school it's weird like okay kate you're fucking weird but 
Ghostface attacks them and they're able to like hold the door closed um, or try to keep the door closed from Ghostface from getting in. So to do that, Kate gets on the ground to kind of like leverage herself or whatever, like push off from the wall that's next to the whatever. You know what I mean? She's on the ground pushing against this door and um, they're able to lock it. And then all of a sudden Sydney notices that she's been stabbed in the back of the neck because Ghostface stabbed through the mail slot, which I love. That is so good. It is so good. Love it. So Judy shows up and Sydney rushes to Kirby's house where she's having a small party. I'll let the original. There is Kirby, Jill, Charlie, and Robbie, and eventually Trevor, who is still trying to win Jill back. And he says he got a text from Jill saying to come to the party, which she says she didn't and she can't find her phone. Very convenient. So she goes to look for the phone and Charlie and Kirby start flirting and trying to kiss, but they're interrupted by Trevor. And of course, because it's a scream and we need to keep up the whodunit aspect, they're all separated for whatever reason. They all have some reason to be separated. And Robbie's outside and he's drunk and he like hits his head and his earlier on in the scene and his camera that he wears on his head that he records everything was filmed back or it was put on backwards when he put it back on. So he's looking at his footage, see what he's like looking at on the live stream and he sees Ghostface, but he looks up and Ghostface isn't there. And that's because the camera is backwards or whatever. Or I think I'm getting that wrong. Whatever. He sees the camera. It's really clever. Okay. It's late at night. Don't, don't yell at me. Okay. Don't yell at me. I might've fucked that up. I don't even know what I said at this point, but whatever. He is stabbed multiple times. Again, it's like, whatever. He was boring. He was weird. And yeah, he tries to stop the murder by saying that he is gay because I guess in there's a new rule. Like it's like the virgin rule in horror that virgins can't die. And I guess gay people can't die, but like name three gay horror characters in slashers pre-2011. Like in canon gay horror characters pre-2011 and i mean like right now like i don't even think i could name three slasher gay characters that stick out to me like uh, okay like that is not real it's like the dumbest thing ever he's like i'm I'm gay and ghostface is like um okay and then (laughs) stabs him anyway so sydney kirby and jill find robbie was that his name whatever and they're attacked so they make a run for it sydney and jill make it to a bedroom where um, Sydney tells Jill to hide under the bed and then she goes out the window onto the roof and when Ghostface gets there she's shouting for Jill to make a run for it as if she made it out and jumped off the roof um, which is quite clever might I say quite quite clever um, when Ghostface gets there we get a shot of Sydney which I love I love the shot she's like it's just her on the roof and the wind is blowing I don't know it's just like I love the camera movement with the wind it just it looks it looks so good. I love it. And Sydney and Ghostface play like their little can mouse game and Sydney ends up falling off the roof and she goes back inside and she finds Kirby and they go to the basement, which has a glass door to the backyard, like the back patio. And Charlie shows up at the door and he's covered in blood and he's begging to be let in. And Kirby's like, she hesitates. And I love this moment of Sydney being like, if you don't trust him, don't let him in. Don't let him in. So she doesn't. And then all of a sudden he's attacked by Ghostface as they watch the window. 
and then the lights go out and the lights go back on and Charlie is tied up like Steve in the original and Ghostface calls Kirby. So while this, I guess Sydney's like, I got to go upstairs. I got to find Jill. So she grabs a knife and heads for Jill and Kirby plays Ghostface's game of naming horror movies, but luckily she's a horror fan and she beats Ghostface at his own game. Then it's time for your last chance question. Name the remake of the groundbreaking horror movie in which the villain- Halloween, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville Horror, uh, Last House on the Left, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, When a Stranger Calls Prom Night, Black Christmas, House of Wax, The Fog, uh, Piranha. It's one of those, right? Right? And when she wins, she goes outside to save Charlie, only for Charlie to stab her in the stomach and reveal himself as Ghostface. Now, this is a very controversial to fans because Kirby is so beloved by fans. Like She might be almost just as beloved as the core three. And myself included, I'm going to say myself included because I love Kirby and we never actually see her die and she's still moving when the camera cuts away from her. And I've heard, um, people saying that Wes did this because he always wanted to bring her back, but I've never actually myself heard that from him or seen that or read it, um, besides from what other people have said. And so I didn't hear that, but I, from what I heard on the commentary track was that Hayden's contract actually said that she could not die on screen, which would be because if she wanted to be in the sequel. So I think it was just a Hayden choice using her star power at the time. Like she just, I don't, I think she was done with Heroes at that time. Maybe Heroes was still on. I can't remember. But like she was using her star power to leverage that in contract negotiations. So contractually, Wes would not, he could not show her death whether he wanted to or not. Like that was up to Hayden Panettiere, not him. And I always see like people on Twitter say it's like disrespectful to Wes if um the new one confirms that Kirby's dead because they say he like didn't want her dead, but like I don't think he cared either way. Um that was her decision and she was able to do that. I don't know if she'll return. I would love for her to return because I love Kirby, I love Hayden Panettiere. I think she needs a career resurgence, but I don't think she's going to return. I think she's dead. I mean, maybe, maybe they kept it a secret for Scream 5, but I doubt it. I highly doubt it. There was that one, I think she like cut her hair or something while they were filming Scream 5 and people were like, oh my God, did she cut it for Scream? Because she's not really doing anything else, which is very bizarre because she was very big and well, actually, I know why she didn't. I think she kind of took a break because she had that whole thing where she was like, I'm depressed from having a baby of postpartum depression. It's like a big story. So maybe that's why she stepped away. I don't know. Um, she did have that show Nashville for a while. I've never watched it, but I don't know. I'd love to see her back maybe as an opening kill. I think that'd be cool if they did that, but also don't want to see her die because I love Kirby, but yeah, upstairs, Sydney sees that Jill is not there anymore and she runs downstairs only to be attacked by charlie and she's able to get away from him and she runs only to be stabbed by a second ghost face right in the stomach and surprise bitch i bet you thought you'd seen the last of me it's jill 
I was so shocked when I first saw this. I had no idea that she was going to be the killer. And it might be so obvious, but to me in my brain, I like wasn't it wasn't connecting to me. It wasn't at all. And I really fell for it. And it's so good. It's the scene is this the rest of the movie is like flawlessly good. So Jill and Charlie have been recording everything and they're going to upload it and make them famous after they pull a billion stew and make themselves look like victims in fame and frame Trevor, sorry, makes most look victims in frame Trevor. And before I get any further, I have to praise Emma Roberts's performance because she is genuinely crazy here. I was so believable today, wasn't I? I mean, I told so many lies that I actually started to believe them. I really think that I was born for this. And is so undeniably funny for the rest of the movie. And she does her like now classic one-liners that she's like made famous for a few years later in American Horror Story Coven and Scream Queens. And oh, it is so, it is so, 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 so good. So anyway, she shows her crazy by shooting Trevor in the dick before shooting him in the head because he cheated on her. <laughs> and they attempt to recreate the original plan after Charlie kisses Jill. And Jill gives this crazy look to Sydney while she's kissing Charlie. Like he has no idea. Like she's so, she's so good in this role. And she's supposed to stab Charlie in the shoulder but instead, she stabs him in the heart. <laughs> she wants to be the sole survivor. And she stabs him in the heart and then kills him and stabs Sydney in the stomach again. And Sydney falls down in a very dramatic moment. And this is when, this is my like, I think I might have said this or, but this, I think this is my absolutely favorite scene in the entire franchise. And that that is when Jill is staging the crime and hurting herself. <laughs> it is so deranged. It is deranged. It is sick. It is twisted, but it makes me laugh every single time. And she rips chunks of hair out. She scratches her face. She stabs herself. She runs into a large picture frame and then she jumps into a glass table after all that, she falls next to Sydney and mirrors her body as she has just gone away with becoming the new Sydney after years of being in Sydney's shadow. Do you know what it was like growing up in this family related to you? I mean, and, ever... ugh, it is so good. She looks exactly like Sydney, like in the same placement of her body. And Jill is taken to the hospital and is swarmed by reporters and cameras, and she's loving it. And She's so funny and her expressions are so good here. And at this point, I really believed that she had gotten away with it. She was going to be labeled a hero and Sydney was dead. But inside the hospital, Dewey meets with Jill and Jill bullshits him by asking how Gail is and mentioning their matching stab wounds and how she'll maybe write a book like Gail. And she tells him that she can't believe that Sydney and all her friends are dead. But he tells her that Sydney's still alive, but he isn't sure if she's going to make it or not. And Jill's reaction is so priceless. Emma Roberts is so funny here. Her face when he tells her that she's alive is, <laughs> it is, it's priceless. It is perfect. It is so funny. So Dale goes back to Gail and mentions her comment about the matching wounds. And Gail's like, uh, how does she know that I was stabbed in the shoulder? Nobody knows that. And immediately they know that she's the killer. So Dewey rushes back to Sydney 
only to find Jill has gotten there first. And she has that amazing line. Won't die, will you? Who are you? Michael fucking Myers. She just attacks her and she punches her in the stitches. And she's like, how are those stitches? And they have this brutal fighting match. And Dewey gets there and Jill just beats the shit out of him with a bedpan and takes his gun. <laughs> so Gail and Judy show up and Jill just shoots Judy in the chest. And Gail distracts her long enough to get Sydney to use the defibrillator on Jill's head. Clear. Clear. Sending her to the ground and together Dewey, Sydney, and Gail are together. Dewey wakes up and Jill gets up and she grabs a shard of glass that she plans to stab Sydney with and Sydney turns around and shoots her straight in the chest and gives the iconic line. You forgot the first rule of remakes, Jill. Don't fuck with the original. And then we learned that Judy survived. And that is the end of the movie. The movie ends with those four surviving those murders in Woodsboro with the people outside still thinking that Jill is the hero. Now, we have just finished talking about all four of the Scream movies. Now, because Scream four was kind of a disappointment they decided not to move forward with scream five and instead decided to do a tv series on mtv so the scream series came out in i believe it was 2015 which i would have been a senior in high school i think so it was an, oh, when was it announced? I can't even remember. I'm, I didn't really write any of this down because honestly, it's kind of irrelevant, but they were going to adapt Scream and they, well, they did for MTV and it was very um, different than what Scream was. And I will say I enjoyed it from what I remember. I just went back yesterday and watched like the first five episodes to kind of remember what happened? Because I haven't watched it since it aired. And honestly, I had a good time. It's dumb. And it's very much a teen show. Like very Pretty Little Liars, very Teen Wolf, very... I don't... I think it's much better than Riverdale <laughs> in terms of writing. Well, I don't know. But it's fun. I'll just say it's very fun. It had a cast of Willa Fitzgerald taking the Sydney role, although she's not playing Sydney, she's playing a completely new character. Bex, Taylor Claus, John Karna, and Carlson Young. I think those are the main cast members. And I will say I really, really, really enjoyed Willa Fitzgerald and I really, really enjoyed Carlson Young. Um, I liked their characters. I liked the story. It was a completely different story, um, different tone. It was kind of more serious. Not that Scream wasn't serious, but the color palette was grayer. That it was more, it was less less comedy than the original Scream series and or film series. And I don't know why. I get why they use the Scream name for marketing, but like it kind of had nothing to do with Scream. And I thought when they tried to make it like Scream, it didn't really work. They really tried to be meta, have a character who was like Randy, and he would talk about movies, but like this isn't a movie, it's a TV show. I feel like they should have been talking about true crime if they wanted to do something meta. 
they didn't, whatever. It was fine. I liked it. It has nothing to do with the Scream movies. I don't even think they referenced the movies at all. Maybe there was a reference in the second one, second season. I can't remember. But I was into it. I liked it for it being its own thing. I didn't really think it was very Scream-like. They had a voice of someone who was trying so hard to sound like Roger L. Jackson. It was kind of embarrassing. But whatever. It it is what it is. I was enjoying it. I remember I enjoyed season two much more than I enjoyed season one. I thought it got better. There's some moments I really, I still remember this day that were just so good. And I kind of want to finish the show after I started it. So from what I remember, it was renewed for a season three and also a Halloween special, even though the ratings were not great. Oh, I forgot to mention, like the story is different. So the story in this in the series on MTV was there was a killer named Brendan James who killed people in the nineties. And now this legend is still around and someone is killing. And they're like, is it Brendan James? What does Brendan James have to do with this? Blah, 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 blah. And these teenagers are kind of brought into this mystery as a, a lot of mystery in this um, show. And so it was renewed for season three and a Halloween special. So the first season we find out who the killer is and the second season we found out who the second killer is and then it ended with i can't remember if the halloween special added the halloween special had its own story own killer own thing that had nothing to do with brennan james from what i remember and then all of a sudden the ending had a cliffhanger to continue the story i think of the brennan james like saga And that was going to continue in season three, which was already renewed. And then for some reason, for whatever reason, MTV decided to scrap everything and reboot it and give it to um, VH1, which is owned by MTV or owned by the same people. So it's like, I don't know why they did that, but whatever, they did it. And it was then retitled to Scream Resurrection and it took a while for it to be released. It came out in 2019. And the cast was kind of fucking crazy for season three. And it had Kiki Palmer, Tyler Posey, Tyga, and Mary J. Blige, of all people. (laughs) And they brought back... So in the original first two seasons, they had their own ghost face mask. Like, it looked different. I loved the design loved it. I think it was scary. I thought it was fun. I thought it was modern. Um, like obviously the original ghost face mask is very iconic. And I think Wes Craven wasn't a fan that they changed it, but the show really wasn't scream in general. So it was like, fine. I like, I liked the design, but they brought back the mask for season three. And then they brought Roger Jackson, Roger L. Jackson to do the voice. So yeah, it also had nothing to do with the film series also had nothing to do with seasons one and two of the show it was like a whole new thing but what drove me nuts is that they renewed it for a season three but were kind of iffy on it but gave it a halloween special so why didn't we use the halloween special to end out the story because now we never know what happened and that will i'll take that to my grave because i hate that (laughs) i hate when shows get canceled before we get answers and we didn't get answers and it was a mystery show so i wanted answers But yeah, there's really nothing else I can really say about the Scream show. I really did not care for Scream Resurrection besides Kiki Palmer, who I like. Um, It's pretty rough. It's a pretty rough 
show, but it had good bones. I think if they gave it a season three, a genuine season three, it could have been really good and really good as in good for a teen show. Cause you know, teen shows aren't for everyone. I typically don't like them anymore because, um, their problems. I feel like I don't, I can't relate anymore. Um, but at the time when it was on, I liked them. I lived for pretty little liars. I watched that from the beginning, even though it's a trash show, but it's like fun trash. And I thought the MTV show was fun trash, but also had like some really good moments, especially season two. But yeah, that got canceled. Scream Resurrection got canceled or just wasn't brought back. I don't know. Who cares? It's not a big deal. But then years later, a new Scream film is announced. And it was kind of my biggest nightmare because Wes Craven was, he's no longer with us. He can't make the movie. And I was really nervous. I was like, I don't, they're going to mess it up. You can't mess it up. You can't do it without Wes Craven. And I didn't think the cast would come back. And if they would, they would only do small parts where they're killed in the beginning. And yeah, I wasn't ready for it. I really wasn't ready for it. But Radio Silence, who directed um, Ready or Not, was attached to do it. And their writing team, whatever. I was like, okay, we'll see how it is. And then Nev, Courtney, David, and Roger, and Marley Shelton were announced to be coming back. And I was like, okay, this can be interesting. I'm really scared for Sydney, Dewey, and Gail. I'm really, really scared for them. I'm not going to lie. I really don't want to see them die. And I know I'll be crying because what I think is going to happen is I think Dewey or Gail are going to die. I think Dewey and Gail are separated at this time. Um, Dewey looks real rough in these trailers. Like he's let himself go. He looks like he's living in like some sort of trailer or something. I think Dewey and Gail separated and I think one of them, either Dewey's going to die and they're going to use it as character development for Gail, as in she always needed Dewey and always loved Dewey and they were like soulmates. Or I think Gail's going to sacrifice herself for Dewey. And I am not ready for that at all. I am really, really, really not ready for that. Especially Gail. Oh, I am Dewey. I just can't. I can't let go of them. But to go five movies and not and those three survive all of them and potentially more sequels sounds crazy to me. Like I I don't think it's gonna happen. I don't, and I'm nervous for it. Um the new cast has Melissa Barrera, Mason Gooding, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Dylan Minette, um, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Kyle Gallner. Sonia Ben Amur, Amur, I'm sorry, I don't know her name, Mickey Madison, and I think the cast looks good. It looks interesting. I think some of them are in high school, some aren't, which is interesting. Um, I really don't think Sydney's going to die because I don't want to, let me knock on wood, because it looks like she's a new mother in this movie based on the trailers and what I've heard. So I, I really doubt they're going to kill her when she has a baby. Yeah, I don't know. I'm real nervous for it, guys. I'm really nervous, but I'm it's my most I'm so excited for this movie. It's my most anticipated of the year. I think it, I have really really high hopes for it. I think 
I don't think David, Nev, and Courtney would come back if they didn't fully believe in this movie. And the posters and the campaign have been amazing. And I'm really scared I'm going to get COVID right before I can see it because I've never been able to see a screen movie in theaters. And this is like a big, it's a big thing in my life. And I really want to go see it in theaters on opening night. But like, I kind of wish they would just put it on Paramount Plus so I can watch it at home. <laughs> I hate it. I would love to watch it in theaters. I would just like to watch it at home at this point. Um, yeah, I like it. I think they're going to, I think they're going to go down. I think the first poster that they released looked very similar to the Halloween one, which I don't want to label this as like a Halloween ripoff. I think if they're smart... They will frame this as a comment on um, nostalgia reboots and fan service and all of that. And I think that's what they're going to do, hopefully. And to name it Scream instead of Scream 5, just like Halloween, is just named Halloween. I think it's smart. Um, I don't like it. I like that it would be Scream 5 instead of just Scream, but I... I think it works if that's the route they go. So if they're commenting on that, I think it'll be, it'll be a smart move. Um, I don't think this will be, I don't want to jinx it. I feel like I'm going to jinx it, but I don't think they're going to go down the Halloween route. They might, they really might, but I'm hoping they don't. Because if you remember my Halloween Kills review, I did not care for the fan service, but I don't know. I feel like we're going to get a lot of fan service here. Um, Kevin Williamson did come back as executive producer. Not sure how involved he was in this, but I hope they do Wes Craven proud. I really do. And I really hope they don't kill the three. Like truthfully, I kind of want Sydney, Dewey and Gail to play smaller roles in the movie and they aren't killed. And we just see the new cast because I'd rather them just be background because I don't want to lose them. I can't lose them. I'll die. I'll literally die if I lose Gail. Ugh. But yeah, I will be seeing it very soon because it comes out the 13th in like 13 days after I film this. So or it comes out on the night of the 13th and hopefully, let me knock on wood again, hopefully I can see it that night. Um, and I will be doing a full-on episode as soon as I um, watch the movie. I will be discussing everything that I just saw. Because I took the day off on the 13th and I took the 14th off so I can do this podcast um, and get it up. Because this is going to be a big moment for me and I'm terrified that I'm going to hate this movie. Because I love 1, 2, 3, and 4. So we'll see. I'll leave it at that. This has been four hour long recording. I'm just about to hit the four hour mark without editing and I had fun. Maybe it was stupid that I did it all at once because I could tell I was losing a little bit of energy when three came around and I talked less about the, um, the technical aspects of the movies, but I don't really care. This is about the story. I love this story. I love these movies and I kind of just wanted to talk about them and really I kind of just recapped them. So I don't know. I just spent four hours on this 
recording alone. And then I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours writing 43 pages worth of stuff. So if this was just me recapping and it's dumb and I don't really say my opinions because now I'm forgetting if I said anything smart or not, um, that really sucks because I just wasted my time. Uh, but if you listen to this whole thing, I am very impressed. I kind of just did this for me because I just love Scream and I want to talk about the story. So yeah, I had fun either way if this episode is shit or not. I'm really excited. I want to share my excitement for the for Scream 5. And I just wanted to get this out there. I wanted to get it out there on the anniversary. I did not think this episode would be this long, but here we are. Four hours. And really, I just want to say again. I want to thank Wes Craven for making this these films. Um, probably pushed me in the direction of wanting to get into film, which we'll see. I don't think it's ever going to happen. But, you know, it got me into wanting to do this podcast, at least. Well, kind of not really. I'll be honest. Um, Rose McGowan is actually a big reason on why I wanted to be in or make movies. Um, I was a huge Charmed fan, like I said before, and then because of Rose McGowan got me into Scream, but I loved Charmed. I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I loved the Charlie's Angels movies with um, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and Lucy Liu, and I wanted to be a stuntman, and I would set up all these like pillows for a wall that I would throw myself through like the characters in Charmed, and that made me want to be a stuntman for the movies, and that kind of just led me wanting to make movies, and then that led me to wanting to make this podcast because I don't think I'll ever make movies, <laughs> even though I would like to. Um, so yeah, I think it, it all leads back to Rose McGowan, Charmed and Scream. So thank you, Rose McGowan, I guess, even though you're kind of controversial. <laughs> Although she has, whatever, I won't get into her controversies and her story because it's pretty traumatic but thank you to scream thank you Wes craven thank you kevin williamson Nev campbell courtney cox david arquette i cannot thank them enough they were a huge part of my life and they're still going to be a huge part of my life i really hope they make it out of scream five i really do and yeah i think that's all i can say about this now that i've hit four hours i'm exhausted my throat hurts. I probably should have done each movie, recorded them separately, but I can never keep track. So I just did it all. My throat is dry. My lips are dry. I suffer so much for this podcast. <laughs> no, but really, thank you so much if you listened to this whole thing. I really hope you did. I, If you didn't, that's okay because I know it's really long. <laughs> all I have to say is, again, thank you for listening. Um, you can please follow my Instagram, the film.degree is the handle. So please follow that. I just posted a whole 12 Days of Christmas post. I'm continuing to post film content and updates on what I'm posting. And feel free to message me on there. And yeah, thank you so much. And go see Scream on, when is it? Sorry, January 14th is when the official release date. So that is actually the 13th. Okay, it comes out on January 14th, but 
January 13th at night. Okay. It's not that hard. Everyone knows how that works, but also maybe don't go because I don't want to get COVID. And also everyone, please, 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 please keep your ass indoors. We can't be getting COVID. We've like hit our peak COVID people. Okay. We can't, I can't, I don't care about my health. I don't care about my heart problem. (laughs) My heart issues that could be affected by COVID. I need to survive to see scream and I need to be healthy to go to see scream because I'm not someone who will go see it with COVID. Like I saw a certain tweet of someone saying they went and saw Spider-Man with COVID. So I'm putting that out there. Don't ruin it for me, everyone. Go see scream, stay safe and healthy because it is really crazy out there right now. And thank you for listening. This is the greatest part. You're gonna love this. We got a surprise for you, Sydney. Yeah, you're gonna love this one. It's a scream, baby. Hold on a sec. I'll be right back. Alright, so I actually recorded that four-hour session two days ago. I recorded it on um the morning of New Year's Eve, or I guess the night, and it is now 3 a.m. on January 2nd. And I just finished editing this episode and Whew. It was a bitch to edit. I am not going to lie. It was absolutely horrendous. I wanted to kill myself after going through it all and doing it all because I don't know if you noticed, but I say, um, a lot and I say, but, um, and, and a lot. So I had to edit all of those out. And if you guys see how many cuts I made in this episode, you would literally vomit. You would vomit. Okay. And I'm sure the ending got a little bit messier because I didn't care to make it sound so seamless anymore because I've been doing this for well over 14 hours. I've been editing for well over 14 hours. I would say, I don't even know how long. I don't even want to think about it. It was disgusting and awful. And after going through the entire episode and listening to that ending where I was like, I don't know if this is bad or not. Yeah, I actually think this episode is terrible. So I thought about, shit, I can't put this out there. Oh, let me just say the reason why I think it isn't great is because I didn't really give my thoughts that much on the movies. Like I didn't talk about the technical aspects. I didn't really give them any thoughts. I was really just kind of um, going through the plot. And I mean, I guess that's fine. It's just not what I wanted. But I was like, oh, I'm going to redo this. Motherfucker, I'm not redoing this. This was four hours, so take it or leave it. No one's going to listen to it anyway because it's four fucking hours long. (laughs) So I was just going to post it. And I am posting it, obviously, if you're listening to this. But the thing is, at the end of it, I was going to give like my thoughts like uh, on the whole of the series and rank the movies and then rank the killers And for some reason, I didn't do that. I think it was probably because I was running on fumes and I was exhausted and it was like seven in the morning by the time I was done recording. Because again, like I said, I just did the whole thing in one sitting like a dumbass. So here we go. Let's just, let me, let's just give our, let me give our killer rankings first. So the killers, let's do a small little recap. Let's not take too much time on it. Just a small little recap. We had Billy and Stu, Mrs. Loomis, and um, 
Mickey. I almost said Derek. Mrs. Loomis and Mickey. Then, oh my God, did you guys hear that? That crack? If you didn't, that's embarrassing because I just stopped my podcast, but that was my bones cracking. And then we had Roman Bridger um, in Scream 3. And then Scream 4, we had Jill and Charlie. I'm not ranking the TV show. One, because I barely remember the characters. I honestly didn't even remember the characters until I watched those five episodes. I don't even remember the who the killer was in season three. So who gives a fuck about that? So I think my list might be controversial. It might be controversial. <laughs> we'll start from the worst, Charlie. Um, Rory Culkin did a fine job. I actually liked, I really like him as an actor. I mean, this is all I think I've seen him in, but whatever. It's just, he didn't really have much to do and he wasn't that smart because Jill just killed him so easily. So, um, bottom of the barrel, Charlie. And then I think, I think I'm going to have to go with, um, Mickey next. (laughs) Is that controversial? I don't know. Um, I think Mickey's fine. I actually really like his motive. I like him in general. Um, you know what? I lied. Mickey isn't next. Roman is next. So it goes Charlie, then Roman. I, well, I was going to give it to, um, I was going to bump Roman up a bit because I think his performance is just so good, but really his motivation lame his kills lame so i mean he did have the house blow up that was pretty cool but other than that like you killed tyson who's that again i don't i don't know um the other guy the one who was in the explosion was his name tom i don't remember so charlie roman then mickey i think mickey's fun actually I was going to say, I think all the killers are good, but, um, Charlie is just kind of pointless. He is very brutal. So I'll give him that. Like, I don't think any of these killers are terrible. I think Roman just had more personality than Charlie, although his personality didn't show up until he took his mask off at the very end. So whatever. So we got Charlie, Roman, Mickey. And now this is where we might get, uh, I'm going to go with Mrs. Loomis. I love, 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 love Mrs. Loomis. I think her motivation is great. I think Lori Metcalf is great. Um, you know what? <laughs> Actually, I think I'm going <laughs> to, I should have writ- written my list down because I feel like nobody's following me at this point, but I am going to actually put Billy before Mrs. Loomis. Oop. That's probably controversial. That is probably very controversial to put Billy at number four, but Billy's just kind of crazy and that's fine. He's fun. He's got great kills and, you know, he's the original and he kind of started it all if you ignore that Roman told him to do it, but I kind of think that Lori Metcalf's performance is so unhinged and just so great that I'm going to put her at three. So I'm sorry for doing this again, but it is 
Charlie, Roman, Mickey, Billy, Mrs. Loomis. So, ooh, I'm going to give my number two spot to Stu. I love Stu. Stu has an, his, his motive is like non-existent. He says, peer pressure, I'm far too sensitive when he's asked. And I don't think he has a motive besides that he is in love with Billy. And I love that for him. (laughs) And I love his, um, I, he's insane. And Matthew Lillard is, has an amazing, amazing performance, an amazing performance. And I know it's controversial to put him at number two with the one I'm going to choose for number one being ahead of him. But I have to say that Jill is my number one favorite killer. She is so, I think her performance and Matthew Lillard's performance, Emma Roberts and Matthew Lillard are both such hilarious, unhinged performances. But the reason why I think I got to give Jill the upper hand is one, she almost got away with it. Almost. If she would have stabbed Sydney one more time, she would have gotten away with it. Hands down. And I just think her motivation, her monologue about fame, where she's like, and what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed like go to college, grad school, work? And then she's like, I don't need, I don't need friends. I need fans after she kills all her friends. Like, it's just so insane. And her thing where she's like, in Sydney, this, in Sydney, that, in Sydney, Sydney, Sydney. It's just too good. I'm sorry. Jill is the top tier killer of the series. It's true. I, I, I can't make it up. I can't make it up. What is that? That's like seven. Let me count. We got Roman. I'm sorry. That is a lie. Charlie. Then we got Roman. Then we got Mickey. Now I can't remember if I put Mickey or Roman first. (laughs) Okay, maybe this is too unhinged and I should have written it down. Um, But whatever, whatever I said, that's, that's my ranking. And thank you so much for listening to that ranking. But I have one more thing to say, and that is kind of my um, ranking of the movies and kind of my overall thoughts. Cause I don't even think I said those. I finished scream. I didn't even get scream four and I didn't even give my like overall thoughts on that. I just went straight into the series. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was so delirious by the end of recording, but I think I'm going to have to start at the bottom again. I'll do the same thing. And I'm going to give it to scream three. I love scream three. I've said it a hundred times in the thing, trying to justify myself in when I was going through Scream 3. I love Scream 3. I still think it's a great movie. When I give my letterbox scores, my star ratings, I give it a four out of five. It is so funny, thanks to um, Parker Posey and Courtney Cox. And I love the Dewey and Gale. I love how they're the center of the movie. And I think Nev Campbell's performance is amazing. And I think Scott Foley is really good too. And I think Parker Posey just honestly makes it so memorable. But the reason it is on my bottom spot is just one, the voice changer is dumb. Two, 
the killer being Sydney's brother and all like that mumbo jumbo. It was like, okay, question mark, like whatever. And really all of my issues with it are just because of the studio making them change what they originally wanted to do and not letting them do what they wanted to do. So while I think it is a technically good movie and I think it is fun and entertaining, I'm going to have to put it at my bottom spot. I don't think it is that I, whatever, I'm just going to say that I, it's on my bottom spot. Now for my second or my number three, my third in the ranking, I'm going to give to Scream 2. I love Scream. And if you remember, I said I gave that a five out of five. So that tells you what my other two are. And Scream 2, it's the reason why I think it is lower is because it is kind of just the same exact thing. It's a retread of two of one, but just bigger. And I do like that it's bigger. And I do like how we um, expanded the mythology and expanded the character arcs. And we gave particularly Gail, like an, a, a great character arc. And it was like the start of a change and a maturity in her. And I, I love it. I think it is great. I think it's almost as good as Scream 1 and it's still at number three. So that just tells you how much I love this series, how much I love the next two. I didn't even really talk about it that much. I love the new cast. I loved, um, I loved the opening Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps. They're fantastic. I think Wes Craven makes this movie feel very warm and inviting while still being a slasher movie and making it feel so big and grand. And I loved Sarah Michelle Gellar. I wish she had a bigger part in it. I love Nev Campbell in it. I love, Lori Metcalf and Timothy Oliphant. I think they're both great. I think everything is great about it. I can't really say anything negative about it. And it's just still at my number three because on my number two, I'm, you know, I can't say, I can't say that any of them are better than the original. I can't, it's impossible. I'm sorry. I think that is an impossible feat to achieve is to ever beat Scream 1. I think these are very damn close because I gave them, I gave Scream 1, 2, and 4 five stars, okay? Maybe people think that's too much. Don't give a shit because it's true and I don't make the rules. So I'm giving Scream 4 my number two spot. I think it is genius with what it does on making it a remake and still keep making it so making it a remake, but still having it be a sequel, like, I don't know how they did that, but they were able to do it and achieve it so brilliantly. And I think like, it's almost the same exact plot of the first one. It's the same motivations really for the killings. Um, if you ignore the, how Roman kind of influenced them. It's still the same thing. They have the same plan. They're going to make themselves look like victims, but they're just using it with updated technology. And they're now going to be famous. They're going to have people, what does Jill say? She says something like, 
um, people don't read anymore. They need to see this shit and they need to see, they're going to see these people get killed and they're going to see Jill be a victim and then Jill's going to be massive. And I just think her plan was so good and almost worked. And I loved seeing these characters come together again and it felt right. It didn't feel like a cash grab, which is crazy because it is sort of a sequel that happened it happened 11 years later or was released 11 years later so I'm not sure how Wes Craven was able to balance that and have it have the aesthetics of a remake and having it um, have updated an updated world I mean it's 11 years later the world advanced so much in that 11 years if you think about it with technology and everything And it was just so successfully able to weave those together. So I love it. I love the cast. I think Emma Roberts and Hayden Panettiere are top notch. I have really nothing negative to say about it. Even though I hate the filter like everyone else, I think it works. Like I said, it just works. It has that aesthetic of a remake. I can't, I just, it's amazing. It is so, and I, when I was getting clips for this, um, episode which again I really hope they don't take this down because I (laughs) used a lot of goddamn clips but I found so many like deleted scenes that I just never watched I don't have the blu-ray for Scream 4 yet I it's like an older blu-ray and I feel like it probably is like shitty and I thought they were going to um give release like a remastered one because the new one's coming out and they did that for the original trilogy I don't know why they didn't for Scream 4 I'm pretty sure it's because it's owned by has distribution rights from someone else but I'm still hoping they they do give a remaster coming up because my DVD is kind of shitty it doesn't have I don't think it has these deleted scenes maybe it does I just haven't looked at it I don't know but there's so many deleted scenes that I kind of wish they kept like there is um when Gail's attacked by Ghostface there is a a line cut where she's it's in the trailer where she says do it if you have the guts like I wish they kept that and then there's this scene where um there's like a knock at the door and the police come in and it's Jill and Sydney in there still and it's really the knock on the door is Dewey testing out the um his deputy Hicks and then um Haas and Perkins and then Kirby comes in and she explains that she is her parents are out of town and there's no way she's staying home by herself and like that makes sense that everything makes sense now like they should have kept that because one Hayden Pinter has like a really great and I don't know her performance in that scene even though like she really does nothing it just feels so natural and great and charismatic that I can't believe they just cut it just because of that reason alone but um it made sense with why no one is like Kirby doesn't have parents at the house when the killings happen because it happens at her house that makes sense it makes sense on why Kirby is at Jill's house like a thing with horror movies that really always bothers me is we never see the parents and I feel like slasher movies or horror in general should start including parents more and I just like if you watch it without those deleted scenes you're like 
why where are Kirby's parents like these things are happening where are her parents and yeah it's kind of like a cheap way to get rid of them saying oh they're just out of town but I don't know it just made sense to me I like seeing it it was like oh now everything is lining up and just kind of her attitude during that scene it just it worked a lot for me I really liked it and there's just some other scenes like there was a scene with like Gail and Sydney in the hospital and there was and there was like a alternate ending that I think was actually pretty terrible but um whatever I liked it and there's always those pictures I didn't see the scene I don't know if it was on YouTube but there was like a I think they show the aftermath of Jenny and Marnie's murder it's like it was in the trailers I think when they were marketing it originally and then you always see that picture of like the hanging body and then it's like written in blood like what's your favorite scary movie I think like I would like to see these so I don't even remember how I got onto this topic of these cut scenes but I love Scream 4 I love it I I don't know I don't know how else to justify my love for Scream 4 I think it is really smart I think it is hilarious I think it's scary I think it's clever and it's at my number two spot. Now, my number one, no surprise, obviously, because there's one left. Scream the TV series. <laughs> that was a really stupid joke. I don't even know why I made it. But obviously, Scream won the original 1996 classic is my favorite. I can watch it every day for the rest of my life. I mean, I could do that for all of them. But really, Scream is just so groundbreaking it is genius it is so incredibly smart I think it is the smartest um horror movie of all time I think it's one of the smartest movies of all time it is just so well crafted and Wes Craven is so amazing at he's just amazing I don't know how he was able to craft this movie I don't know how Kevin Williamson was able to come up with this script and I don't know how I don't know why the studio even like gave this the okay and gave it kind of a big budget and got big actors like it's just crazy that it even happened because horror was so dead at the time and they really just gave it their all for this movie and it shows it is so good it is so it still feels new I don't think it has aged at all the only thing that ages is when um the sheriff is like what are you doing with the cellular telephone it's like it still makes sense though it doesn't age it it's just like oh haha that's funny but in hindsight it doesn't feel like it aged at all like if it aged if it did anything with aging it aged so well like it still feels so new and ahead of its time and it's old. It's 25 years old now. And it just holds up. And the opening scene with Drew Barrymore, it's incredible. And everything after that is incredible. I I love Scream. And I always say Jennifer's Body is my favorite movie. And maybe it is because it just means so much to me. And I think that movie is super smart. It's probably just as smart as Scream, to be honest. And the dialogue is so funny. Like Diablo Cody nailed it. Karen Kasama nailed it. Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried, they nailed it. And I love that movie. But there's something about Scream that always bring and I always come back to that. I'm like, this movie is just like the greatest movie ever made. 
no hate to their movies, but like, sorry, Gone with the Wind, you fucking suck. Scream is way better. Outsold. Hello. It's just iconic. It is so iconic. And I said that probably so many times in the episode. I don't even remember because I'm trying to block out the past two days of editing this because it was so annoying. And I'm about to edit this next 20 minutes that I'm adding to it that nobody's going to fucking listen to. <sighs> yeah, that's my ranking of Scream. <laughs> and also, I guess I should just like list my favorite characters just for shits and giggles. My favorite character, hands down, is Gail Weathers and then probably Sydney Prescott and Dewey. Those are, I don't think you can say your top three without having them be the top three. Um, and then to round that out for five, I would probably say Jennifer Jolie from Scream 3 and then Jill from Scream 4. I think those are my top five. And then honorable mentions, ugh, Kirby played by Hayden Panettiere in Scream 4, um, Stu played by Matthew Lillard in Scream 1. Those are my honorable mentions. And I'm probably forgetting someone who I absolutely love, but I can't remember. I don't know. This has been a long, long ride, and I don't know how I feel about this episode. I'm a little hesitant to even upload it because I don't know. I feel like I focused so much on certain aspects of it while I was editing it that I started to not like it when I completely forgot the things that I did like about it. So I don't know, maybe I just need to be more confident in what I post or what I upload or whatever. Um, I don't know. I've been discouraged on like wanting to keep doing this because I don't know. I feel like it's not great, but I'm trying and I guess that's all I can do. So I'm going to upload this obviously because you're, if you are listening to this, it's posted, whatever. I'm so stupid. <laughs> Ugh, maybe I should have just done a more condensed one hour episode where I talked about my thoughts like I just did, but whatever, I did what I did, I edited it, so I put the work in, and I'm gonna just fucking post it, who gives a fuck? Um, hopefully I'll get another episode in before, um, Scream 5, I'm hoping, I'm just gonna do kind of more of a laid back episode, something fun, I don't know what it is yet, I need a little small little break because this editing was complete ass let me tell you so look forward to that follow me on instagram film.degree and i will talk to you guys later thank you so much for listening bye